0: I don't equivocate at all. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced I'm correct. It goes without saying I could be wrong, but uh, I put the evidence out there and the arguments out there exactly the way that any academic or any scientist should, frankly, in order for peer review. So if you look, it's out here. You can quibble with the evidence. You can quibble with the arguments, but the evidence and the arguments are there. And yes, I am pretty solid on them.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, you know-
0: don't have an alien race involved, as in non-human, they're not from this planet, no, but originally I don't think the human race was from this planet either. We migrated here. Our ancestors went back where they came from and we forgot about them, but they haven't forgotten about us. What I like about this, this kind of presentation of UFO stuff is it forces people to think, and it forces them to think in practical terms. It's like, look, you have a preconception in your head, but what if we're looking at something more like this? Let me tease you with this. See this door? Guess what's behind it? Another door. Want to keep looking? Come on, you know you do.
2: And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of B O A Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to our good buddy Pete Diggins for providing the theme music to this edition of the program. Check out his website triplew.aurophonic.com, and you spell that a u r o p h o n i c dot com. Check it out. No in-house notes this week, so let's get down to business, my friends, on the latest installment of BOA Audio. You know I would not leave you hanging here for the Thanksgiving holiday. Hopefully, this episode is getting into your earbuds just in time for the annual commute to Grandma's house or the plane ride to wherever your holiday destination is. Happy Thanksgiving to all the great BOA Audio listeners out there. As always, thank you for your support of the program. This time around on BOA Audio, our guest is coming back to the program by popular demand. Definitely someone who has generated a ton of listener feedback from folks who have enjoyed his previous appearances on the show. I'm talking about the amazing Bruce Rux. That's right, my friends. Bruce Rocks is back here on BOA Audio for what really amounts to a massive jam session that covers ancient aliens, Egypt, Mars, and contemporary UFO events. For the folks who tuned in for the Bruce Rux trilogy way back in season 4, you recall that we were talking about Bruce's book Hollywood vs. the Aliens and really only kind of touched on Bruce's overarching theory on what is behind UFOs. Well here in this 2 hour plus conversation we are going to dig very very deeply into Bruce's overall hypothesis on what is going on with the UFO phenomenon. And Bruce stands by it 100%. And, of course, along the way, we're going to talk about his recent trip to Egypt, as well as his journey there in 1994 with Zechariah Sitchin, and we'll hear his thoughts on the latest spate of UFO-related movies from Hollywood. As I said, Bruce is adamant about his theory on what the UFO phenomenon is all about, and normally... I tend to shy away from guests like that. And even during the course of the interview, I was kind of wondering why I enjoyed talking to Bruce so much, considering he really is sort of the antithesis of my ideal BOA Audio guest. And then it kind of came to me when I was listening to the interview a second time around doing the editing of the show. What I like about Bruce is... He's kind of like you and me, folks. He took a look at this UFO phenomenon. He really did the research. He really did the study of this entire enigma. And he came to some really startling conclusions that he is certain about. What I like about him, though, is that unlike folks out there in the world of UFO studies who have come to conclusions and are sure about them, Bruce isn't out there proselytizing. He's not out there lecturing people. He's not out there lobbying for his theory. Really, Bruce only talks about this stuff when we reach out and drag him back to BOA Audio to talk about this stuff. Bruce is not pushing a theory on anybody. Bruce has come to the conclusion of what UFOs are and has walked away. And to me, that's refreshing, remarkable, and really something worth investigating. So we're going to talk about all that stuff, not just the theory, but Bruce's place in the world of ufology. Overall, the whole conversation really picks up where we left off with the Bruce Rocks trilogy two years ago. It's fast-paced, it's free-flowing, and it will certainly serve as the ideal dinner or travel companion for any BOA Audio listeners' Thanksgiving holiday, as we welcome back the amazing Bruce Rocks to BOA Audio. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bruce Rocks, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Bruce has studied UFOs his entire life. After the Mars Observer probe failure in August of 1993, Bruce wrote to share his findings with several researchers in the field and with a few elected representatives. As a result, he found himself invited on ancient astronaut author Zechariah Sitchin's first tour of Egypt in the spring of 1994. During that trip, Bruce decided to write a book containing the results of his own UFO research and conclusions, which resulted in Architects of the Underworld, Unriddling Atlantis, Anomalies of Mars, and the Mystery of the Sphinx, published in 1996. The following year, he wrote a companion volume that turned out to be even more massive, titled Hollywood vs. the Aliens, the Motion Picture Industry's Participation in UFO Disinformation. Both were published by Frog Books in Berkeley, now a part of Random House. Bruce does not have any website, But if you want to get in touch with him, shoot me a line via BOA, and I will forward your correspondence to the amazing Bruce Rux. With all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 14th, 2011. Bruce Rux shares his thoughts on the UFO phenomenon, the ancient world, and how it all connects on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Very excited about this episode, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are going to be very excited as well because he is back, my friends, by popular demand. The man who starred in the uh, Bruce Rocks trilogy back in Season 4 and has spawned just tons of emails from so many listeners all the time. I'm still getting them constantly in, in the interview like two years ago. Uh, one of the standout guests and shows and showcases we ever had on this program and uh here we are we're at the end of season six and i can't think of a better guy to bring back six rocks it all works together and so many people are going to be psyched to hear that he's back on the show and he's been on on an exciting journey i don't want to say too much more about it we'll get into that but uh he's been up to some crazy stuff since the last time we talked to him so it, it's going to be fun so welcome back to the show bruce it already feels Because we've actually been talking now, folks, for like the last ten minutes before we started the show. It feels like I never stopped calling you all those Friday nights when we were taping the trilogy. It's like right back in the saddle here with Bruce Rux. Welcome back to the show, buddy.
0: It's always nice to be here.
2: Let's catch people up on who Bruce Rux is. Give us the bio, the background. I think that would probably be the best way to do it. For the folks who haven't heard the Bruce Rux trilogy, I dare say stop this show right now and go listen to that. It was like six hours long. It was amazing. Obviously, the man behind... Hollywood versus the Aliens, which is this like 600-page mind-bending book, and uh, Architects of the Underworld as well, but I haven't had a chance really to sit down and digest it yet. So we're sort of just doing, I guess you could call it maybe like a little uh, teaser here between what will probably be the next Rux trilogy sometime down the line. So a catch-up and, uh, you know, a touch base. So tell people who is Bruce Rux beyond what I just told them about you, and, and you know, give them some bio background and, and your story here.
0: Certainly. I'm not sure where to begin exactly. I was an actor for most of my life for about 20 years. Uh, back in the uh, early 1990s, uh, i have been doing a lot of research in UFOs and I made a few discoveries that I felt needed to be written about. Uh, I made my first trip to Egypt 17 and a half years ago, uh, over Easter of 1994. That one happened to be with Zechariah Sitchin, who was an ancient astronaut uh, author. Uh, deeply indebted to uh, Alexander Kazantsev in Russia, who he probably knew personally. He's, he never said. He was always kind of secretive and private about a lot of things. But I'm pretty sure he must have known Kazantsev. Certainly he knew everything that Kazantsev knew. Uh, Kazantsev, for those who don't know, was kind of the uh, the godfather of ancient astronaut theory. He was the one that was really first exploring all of this stuff in depth and in detail with a great deal of scholarship. Uh, so I went to Egypt with Zechariah Sitchin in the Sinai Peninsula, we covered a lot of territory. We were in uh, upper and lower Egypt and, uh, like I said, in the Sinai. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided I would write uh, a couple of books. Well, I actually decided I would write a book, and it became two books. Uh, the first one was Architects of the Underworld, Unriddling Atlantis, Anomalies of Mars, and the Mystery of the Sphinx. And the second was Hollywood Versus the Aliens. Uh, we've already talked about Hollywood Versus the Aliens quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Architects of the Underworld gets into connecting uh, ancient mythologies of the world Uh, with UFO phenomena, I I believe the two are inextricably intertwined. They're completely connected. Uh, The big problem in the field is that you can find lots of people who will talk about ancient astronauts and not seem to have any problem with that. (laughs) And you can find lots of people who will talk about the modern phenomena. and they don't have any problem with that. But you can't get the people who talk about the modern phenomenon to look at the ancient, and you can't get the people that look at the ancient phenomenon to look at the modern. <laughs> and to me, they're exactly the same. There's nothing different going on. It's the same people involved, and it's really very easy to piece together, except that you can't get these two camps to sit down and talk with each other. They, they just consider each other's camp to be anathema.
2: So you're saying like the contemporary, the pro-contemporary, I guess you could say, are like, think it was what, like a different race back then? Or they don't even acknowledge the... Like, like either side won't even acknowledge that the other side exists, I guess you'd say.
1: The real
0: problem is, you get the, the modern ufologists insist that, or the, the prevailing consensus, is that uh, they come from some other solar system, that they are not human, that they're performing some weird kind of hybrid experiments on human beings. Uh, and, you know, anyone looking at the ancient astronaut phenomenon, it looks at that and says, no, I don't believe anything like that is going on. Frankly, neither do I. I do believe the modern UFO phenomenon is going on, and I think that we're simply misinterpreting it. Uh, We don't have an alien race involved, as in non-human. They're not from this planet, no. But originally, I don't think the human race was from this planet either. We migrated here. We simply forgot about it. Uh, I mean, our ancestors went back where they came from, and we forgot about them, but they haven't forgotten about us. Uh, So when we talk about the hybridization experiments and stuff like that, I believe we're misinterpreting a lot and that the greys, which are being interpreted as living beings, are in fact just automata. They're robots that are made to perform various functions. Uh, But that makes it very easy to reconcile the past phenomenon with the current phenomenon. It's the same people involved. And in fact, when you go back over the ancient record, you can find that they were using animated figures that flew flew through the clouds, picked people up, and performed procedures on them, too. It's actually in their mythology. You can find it. So I don't see any contradiction between the two, but you can't get the people looking at the ancient stuff to say, well, what does that have to do with weird little gray reptiles from Zeta Reticuli? No one said there were any gray reptiles from Zeta Reticuli except some of the modern ufologists. I'm saying something completely different. And the people that are looking at gray aliens from Zeta Reticuli don't want to look at the ancient phenomenon because they think that if... The ancients, uh, if there were space people in the ancients, then it had to be the gray alien people from Zeta Reticuli or what have you. And, you know, we're not seeing enough evidence of them. So both camps don't want to take the other camps a view because they've got an entrenched view which doesn't fit with what they're looking at in the other camp. And, of course, you have the same problem with uh, contemporary Egyptology or just Egyptology in general, I should say. Uh, Egyptology is far from a science. Egyptology is basically a theory and a religion that got itself set down a long time ago and then refused to question any of its own basic tenets, even when those tenets didn't have any reason to be believed. Uh, They just kind of came up with the best theory they could at the time, which wasn't very satisfactory, and they stuck with it. And if you question anything after that, you know, they just poo-poo you and say, well, you don't know what you're talking about but even the people that kind of accidentally created the dogmas that the egyptologists believe uh, have come out upon occasion themselves and said look uh, you know you've taken something that i said and and put a lot more into it than i meant like dr i.e.s edwards who's written books on the pyramids he used to be the keeper of egyptian antiquities at the british museum uh, he once made a comment it was kind of a passing comment in one of his writings that uh, he was musing on why the pyramid was built in the shape that the pyramid was built And he happened to notice that day that the sun came down through the clouds and it looked kind of like a pyramid shape. And he said, well, maybe it was something like that. Well, from that offhanded comment, the next thing you know, uh, all of his students and anyone who heard him was saying, well, the Egyptians built the pyramids because they saw in it the reflection of the sun through the clouds. (laughs) And then it became a dogma. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't question that anymore. It's like, well, it's established fact. The Egyptians built it that way because it looked like the sun coming down through the clouds and created this pyramid shape. (laughs) And Edwards even came out and and made comment on that and said, look, that's really not what I said. and That's really not what I meant.
2: Yeah. Now, let me... Let's sort of like jump back, I guess, to – I want to sort of like really investigate these theories that you have because uh, you're very steadfast on them. You're very – you know, you, you don't really equivocate on this, which I like.
0: No, um, I don't equivocate at all. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced I'm correct. It goes without saying I could be wrong. But uh, I put the evidence out there and the arguments out there exactly the way that any academic or any scientist should, frankly, uh, it, in order for peer review. So if you look, it's out here. You can quibble with the evidence. You can quibble with the arguments. But the evidence and the arguments are there. And, yes, I am pretty solid on them.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's what I like about talking to you. I don't get any uh, newspeak. So, okay, so who then is behind these robotic craft that are coming here? Um, you
0: know, or craft, I guess you could say, manned by robots.
2: Who, who do you
0: think is behind that? We call them by any number of different names in our mythologies. Uh, I tend to call them the Donan, after the Donan, or the fairy folk of the Celtic mythology. They could equally well be called the Anunnaki, or those who from heaven to earth came from Sumerian mythology. Uh, you'll find, for instance, the name Anu is used in, frequently in connection with space by the ancients. Uh, and with the afterlife also. So the Anunnaki or the Donnan are what I tend to call them, but you could call them any number of different things. Uh, These are all just names for the gods, if you will. (laughs) And the gods in all ancient mythologies are human beings just like ourselves, only longer-lived and uh, more magical or more technologically advanced, if you will. And frequently, even in the mythology, the technology is explicitly stated. Now, for instance, Vulcan or Hephaestus was making robots in his forge beneath the earth. They helped him walk. He was lame, and he had two female robots that he created that helped him walk. That's actually in the mythology. Yeah, they helped him walk, right? Right. No, I'm just being sarcastic. Like he, he, oh. he, created, he, he created two female robots. Oh, they were well, helping him walk. Just they relax. Helped him, they helped him with another leg. Let's put it that way. <laughs>
2: All right, so so then I guess you'd say you're you're saying like the gods but you don't necessarily know if we don't really necessarily know if they're like I guess technically they're alien because they're not hanging around living here with us, but you don't necessarily know if they're like interdimensional, they're from a planet somewhere or what, right?
0: I believe they I'm certain they came from another planet, whether that planet is in this solar system or from out of this solar system, I'm really not sure. There are some good reasons to believe either. Uh they appear to have been using if I'm looking just at at some of the stuff from ancient Egyptian mythology, they appeared at that time to be using something like our own three-stage rockets, and they have depictions of these actually drawn in, in several places, uh, which would seem to indicate to me that they were actually probably right next door on our own solar system or coming from the planet Mars, as my own guess. Mm-hmm. But whether they came from someplace else originally, I don't know. Uh, considering they were using three-stage rockets, or what appear to be three-stage rockets, I, I'm inclined to look within the solar system, but there are some reasons to believe that they might possibly have come from the Sirius uh, system, and that's just from the Dogon tribes. Uh, the, look, the Dogon tribe, the Minyanka, the Bambara, the Bozo, and the Dogon are these four Mali tribes. Uh, who point to Sirius, they know a great deal about Sirius, and they understand its orbit completely, and that it's a twin star. In fact, it might even have a third star, which we're still having trouble seeing. But they have very accurate knowledge about this that stretches back for generations. They say they got it from Owanus or NOMO, who came from Sirius. They're rather specific about that. He actually came from that location. He wore a a wetsuit. Well, he wore a fish skin, as they put it and fell into the ocean from the sky, and he came out of the ocean, took the fish skin off, taught them the arts and sciences, and he put the fish skin back on and went back into the ocean. <laughs> um, and he, he looks like a human being. He's a bearded human being. There are depictions of him around the world carved in stone. So uh, he's not, you know, some weird fishy-looking creature. Right. And a lot of the people that try and talk about the serious mysteries say, including the author of the book uh, on the serious mystery, Now, Robert Temple liked to say, well, maybe he was some kind of repulsive fish person. I said, well, look, you can see the depiction of him yourself. He's got this artificial fish skin. He's pushed the head up, the fish head up on top of his own head, and the mouth is open looking exactly like a bishop's miter, and the body of the fish is trailing down behind him with the tail behind him looking exactly like a bishop's robe. This is where we got that iconography. He's a god who came down out of the sky, taught mankind the arts and sciences, and, yeah, he used a wetsuit. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, They're very explicit that he came out of the sky. They draw the ark that he came on uh, as a rocket with a fiery exhaust. They're very specific about all of these things. So whether he actually came from Sirius or whether they misunderstood that he came from Sirius, and he was just using that as some sort of reference point, I don't know, but I do believe that Owanus or Nomo, by whichever name you wish to call him, did come down out of the sky and did teach mankind the arts and sciences, because you'll find that in all the world's mythologies. This is just one, th- th- these are four tribes uh, in Mali who have this particular mythology, but you'll find it spread through Africa, and it's, it's the exact same thing in Egypt or any place else you go in the world.
2: Obviously, Egypt plays a big part in all this, because part of the subtitle for Architects of the Underworld is Mystery of the Sphinx, where. Does the whole Egypt thing fit into all this?
0: Egypt becomes of extreme importance because of its age. The only story we have of Atlantis, as Atlantis, comes from Plato. Plato got it from a Greek statesman named Solon, who claimed to have gotten it from an Egyptian priest. So we're getting the story of Atlantis from a third time remove. Okay. Now, by Plato's reckoning from what he was told, uh, he got somewhere about 9,700 years before his time or about 11,700 years before ours, somewhere in that neck of the woods. Uh, by his reckoning of the story, as he heard it, Egypt was established by the Atlanteans after Atlantis fell. After Atlantis was destroyed, it was reestablished in Egypt, which carried on its its traditions. This is from the Egyptian high priests.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So then the question becomes, where is Atlantis or what is Atlantis? Uh, The actual definition of Atlantis as given by Plato, it was a round island. He's very specific about that. It was colored red, white, and black. Uh, It was larger than the known world at the time, the ancient world, which would not fit in the Atlantic basin, I might add. And it was beyond the Pillars of Hercules. Now, beyond the Pillars of Hercules is a little bit deceiving, and it's why everybody thinks of Atlantis being in the Atlantic Ocean. Beyond the Pillars of Hercules had a different meaning to the Greeks, or at least it had another meaning to them. Mm -hmm. And that other meaning is, it's beyond the known oceans. The Pillars of Hercules, beyond the Pillars of Hercules, was where the supernatural ocean lay that nobody understood. Now, if we accept the supernatural ocean as being the ocean of space, and we know that the ancients did refer to space as an ocean, they did that universally. Then, when you take the myth of Atlantis a red, white, and black land to the west, also located in the west, beneath the earth and under the sea. Well, how can something be beneath the earth and under the sea? If it's in the sea of space, then it can be. Yeah. If you look at the sun as our point of orientation, which is why we use that word, it rises in the east, then that which is in the east is upper, and that which is in the west is lower, in a descending order, so to speak. Well, looking at it by that logic, if you look at the sea of space... Uh, One below us to the west would be a red, white, and black land that is known as Mars. And it would be beneath the earth and under the ocean in the sea of space. And all the world mythologies have got this red land to the west, this mysterious red land to the west. It's the land of the dead, the abode of the dead. Well, we've got one right there. And it appears to have what look like Egyptian artifacts on it including what, to me, looks very much like the face of RAW. Now, I've sent you pictures of that so you can judge for yourself, uh, showing the ones that I had from my original sketch in the book, uh, which came off of the 1976 Viking Mars probe photos, and the NASA enhancements of the same, uh, and the more current 2000 images from the year 2000, taken just from the overhead probe there, that are just straight overhead shots, no enhancements whatsoever. Uh, but I believe when you look at both of those, if you look at them honestly, uh, then... We're not looking at something that was ever intended to be a human face. What we're looking at is a hawk in Egyptian headdress, or the god Ra, who was in Egyptian mythology described as having been built in the Red Land of Egypt, very specifically in Lower Egypt. Uh, And the Sphinx was supposed to have been built in Ra's image. Well, our Sphinx in Giza does not look like a hawk. Ra was depicted as a hawk. The one on Mars does look like a hawk. So there I've got uh, a Sphinx face looking like Ra in a red land with Egyptian artifacts around it, what appears to be a pyramid complex this is what Richard Hoagland was writing about in the Monuments of Mars Yeah, and several other people of course have been writing about it as well he's hardly alone on that so
1: for all these reasons
0: I think it's extremely important to be looking at Egypt as our source for understanding the origin of human civilization uh, Atlantis is just one term for it, like I said this red land of the west, it's universal you'll find it all over the world now, there are people called the Red Paint People. No one really knows much about them. We call them that because we find their dead painted red and buried facing the West. Well, you find them painted red and facing the West in Egypt. You find them that way in the Americas. You find them that way in India. You find them all over the world like that. I've never what heard of they? this. What is... Oh, the Red Paint People? Yeah. Some people believe they descended from the Phoenicians or they were the Phoenicians. Uh, you could look them up, actually. If you, do, if you went into the search engine and typed up Red Paint People, yeah. you'd find them.
1: Huh. You have to look
0: into this. They say they appear to have traveled all over the world, and no one knows who they are.
2: And they're pa- right. how are they painted red? If people find people are finding these are like ancient dead people, right? Sure. Yeah, they're not, we're not talking about this as like things that are happening now, where like someone finds some dude painted.
1: Oh no, no, red no, no. In this, this is
2: from shit. ancient times. Yeah, okay, yeah, this is all from ancient times. How do they know they were painted red? If that when they dig them up though, they're,
0: they're red. They're painted in red ochre paint. It stays, even if the body like disintegrates into a skeleton. Oh, well, it's not just the body. They paint the clothes. They paint uh, okay. them red. Okay.
2: I had to, uh, this sounds unbelievable. I, have to <laughs> I had to keep asking these. Yeah, the, look them up. Yeah, weird, weird. So you're, so you, we're kind of like tying this all in now. It's sort of all coming together here, uh, I think. This, I guess your general idea, which is that this all sort of started on Mars, came to Earth. Then what do you think happened to Mars? It just it got destroyed or what?
0: Yes, I think Mars got destroyed. Uh, this also is not a novel or unique idea. It's been proposed by uh, several mathematicians and astronomers uh to explain some of the anomalies in our solar system, for instance, according to bode's law, uh, planets are always found at particular increments from their parent star, and we've never found an exception to this anywhere in the universe so they're they're measured by astronomical units. I can't give you the exact math behind it but you always, you'll know exactly where a planet's going to be because you can just look at Bode's Law and say, well, look, there's going to be one here, one here, one here, one here, one okay. here. Okay, well, where there should be a fifth planet in our solar system is an asteroid belt. Ah. So what happened to that planet? It had to have been a planet at one point. Mars has a flat ellipse of an orbit. Why does it have a flat ellipse of an orbit instead of something more regular? The answer to this would be something destroyed that fifth planet. Whatever that something was, turned the fifth planet into the asteroid belt and took some of the mass of that planet away with it. Now, here we're theorizing a potential large body that is at the outer rim of our solar system, probably captured in antiquity. This is where we start getting into Zechariah Sitchin's territory, but he is not alone in this. There have, like I said, been several astronomers and mathematicians who've argued the exact same thing. But some very large body at the... at the edge of our solar system that was not originally part of our solar system, got captured in antiquity and pulled in a counter orbit to the rest of our planets. Uh, meaning, if we rotate clockwise, we orbit clockwise, this thing got caught counterclockwise. Now, when it passed close to the sun, which it very, very rarely does, it came close to Mars and the fifth planet. The fifth planet was destroyed by the gravitational forces. Part of that planet was pulled along by this large body as it orbited around the sun. This would be what the comets are, where the comets originated. They're the debris of the fifth planet. Now, standard astronomers will not tell you that. They'll tell you they came from the Oort cloud. I'm telling you the opposite. I'm saying they came from here, and we're registering them as the Oort cloud. Hmm. And they go beyond our solar system.
2: So we're talking Planet X type stuff here
0: now. We are talking Planet X. Okay. That's exactly what we're talking about. Uh, planet X pulled this it pulled the debris of the fifth planet along with it, or some of it, which we recognize as the comets, and they come back. Uh, and the rest of the fifth planet is the asteroid belt. <laughs> well, with the loss of all of that mass from the fifth planet, the orbit of Mars suffered horribly. It went into a flat ellipse. Uh, if you picture the sun as a central oval, and then, or a central circle, and then draw a very long oval around that circle, then you have the orbit of Mars. It comes really close to the Sun, then it goes way far away. Then it comes back close, and it goes way far away. And it does this continually. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't do that, but it does. Now, it would do that if, as I just said, a lot of the mass that had been holding it in place gravitationally had been destroyed or removed. Now, when that happened, if it happened, it tore away Mars' atmosphere And the water that it had, and we do have evidence that there was substantial water on Mars at one time. We still find it in permafrost in the soil. NASA will tell you this. It probably had a very, very large body of water on it at one time. That would have been sucked into space and locked into the soil. What was left in the permafrost that we register there today. In other words, it would have destroyed the planet. It would have made it no longer viable. So... Probably in extreme antiquity, and and by extreme antiquity, I mean 450,000 to a half million years. Okay. Uh, That is the the theoretical dating that NASA will give you on this area of Uh, Sidonia. Sidonia is the area that we're talking about that has what appear to be Egyptian uh, artifacts, Egyptian structures, and Egyptian sphinx, actually two Egyptian sphinxes, uh, one of which looks very much like a hawk, and the one across from it looking very much like a baboon, uh, which would be Thoth. And, you know, where I find the one, it's uh, pretty likely to, uh, that you would find the other. It's kind of like going to Mount Rushmore. I see one president, oh, look, there are three more. Yeah, exactly. Why so, stop at one? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's not unlikely, and, well, that's what they look like.
2: Now, how about we try and look at these timelines, then, because you're saying that this destruction probably happened like half a million years ago. Somewhere in that neck of the woods. Oh, so at, but how do we? how does that sync up with the Earth time? What's going on on Earth at that point? Are, we, are, we, well, are, we, are there actual people yet or what? I don't know. <laughs> I
0: really have no knowledge of <laughs> This would have been right about the time that Homo erectus was first showing up on the scene or our first uh, human ancestor or human-like ancestor, if we accept evolution as uh, the proper model. And I, I couldn't really tell you whether it's the proper model or not. It's just the best we've got at the moment. So we're not talking Sumerians yet? Uh, we wouldn't be talking an advanced civilization? No. Sumer, to the best of our knowledge, goes back what about six, seven thousand years. Yes, oh, so we're talking would.
2: quite a quite a time
0: difference. Oh, then. entire
2: So what time, were these? Yeah. So the so where? So then, I, uh, theoretically, I guess then people had to have left Mars before it got destroyed, or while it was getting destroyed. Then they just wandered around for like half a million years, and then come to Earth.
0: No, my guess is they came here, and the same catastrophe that destroyed Mars also destroyed Earth. Hmm. Okay, or just messed it up pretty bad. Cause we're messed it up pretty now. bad, yes. Maybe yes. it made humanity, it more humanity ideal. Was not, yeah, maybe, humanity you know. was not completely wiped out, but I do believe that there was a substantial catastrophe on Earth as well.
1: Okay,
2: okay.
0: But it could have been like one of those beneficial, like maybe we got all their water,
2: <laughs> you know? Like it all got <laughs> well, sucked up on Mars and then spit back onto Earth, and it was like, we, we used to be like
0: Mars. Yeah, actually, if you get into the mythologies, uh, there is quite a bit uh, about the gods using the destroyed former world, which is often referred to as a decapitated head, Uh, They confer with the decapitated head, and they take its knowledge to the new world and and build the new world out of the remains of the old one. So, yeah, there's a possibility of that. The moon might figure into that as well. Uh, The moon is extremely mysterious. We really don't know anything about it. Uh, If you ask NASA about it, you'll get as many different answers about the moon as people you ask at NASA. Interesting. Yeah, I
2: know. I know you're a, a moon hoax proponent. So we actually had a moon hoaxer on the show
0: uh, a few months ago. You should check it out. Right. Okay, so you think they probably just came here and what? Here we get into, we have to go back into the mythology again if we want to look for answers. Okay. Now, in the ancient mythology, let's take the Sumerian, uh, since that's pretty intact, and it's basically the origin of our Bible. Egyptian mythology and Sumerian mythology are basically the origin of our Bible as we recognize it. Uh, They were rather explicit in their myths, that there were a society of gods, an entire bunch of them, uh, that they were in space from some other world. And they came here in order to mine resources. They came here for gold. They came here for resources. Uh, they needed slaves. They needed miners. And they got tired of doing the mining themselves, so they tinkered around with the idea of coming up with a slave race. There was a native race here that was somewhat adaptable, But it didn't quite work because it wasn't intelligent enough. So they started experimenting with hybridization. They were very advanced with genetics, and they even described things in quite some detail. I mean, they've got very lengthy descriptions of how they go about uh, bonding the essence of one of the Anunnaki with the essence of the creature that was here. Uh, They do this in what appears to be a laboratory and come up with a viable hybrid which is given birth by one of their women. Well, they do this for a while. They give birth to this slave race in order to do their mining for them. But it's a laborious process, and of course the women don't care for it because it's every bit as painful as any other childbirth. So they upgrade the new species that they have created and make it capable of reproducing itself or giving it the gift of knowing, as the Bible would put it.
1: Hmm.
0: Uh, So they're now a viable race. They're a separate, viable race. Now, when you get into the history of the Bible, when you get into the Sumerian history, the clay tablets and all of that, uh, you get into some very long descriptions, and some of them are a little bit fragmentary. uh, We're not sure where to piece all of them together. But when you piece them together, you get this long kind of history of uh, the human race and the God race uh, having different kinds of relations with each other. Uh, You have the paradisical fall and there's the uh, coming to awareness of things they were not supposed to know and being kicked out of the garden, so to speak. Uh, and you have the serpent god, who is always the, uh, the benefactor of mankind, always takes mankind's part and helps him along. Uh, he's the one that creates uh, the Noah story. He's the god who circumvents the decision of the other gods when the flood is going to come. Let me go back. The flood is a universal myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, You will find it in all cultures, and there is very little variation between all of these myths. What happens is, through some fault of mankind, which almost invariably happens to be mating with the gods, or mating with fallen gods, the Nephilim, as they are referred to in the Bible, or the giants, Mm -hmm. the ones who fell to earth from heaven, uh, they have congress with these gods, which they are not supposed to. This results in offspring. The council of the gods decides that a coming catastrophe which will wipe out the world will be allowed to happen. It's not something that they caused to happen themselves. It's something that was going to happen. Yeah. And they had a choice. They could either save mankind and their own brethren that were down there who had transgressed, or they could let them be wiped out. Maybe it's like an asteroid hit or something. that was Exactly. Like they could shoot out of the sky if they wanted to. Exactly. So, They come to a decision not to inform everyone on Earth of what is coming, to let it happen, to let it be destroyed. Sounds like our government. (laughs) Well, yeah. In this particular case, what you've got is an entire council of gods uh, who live on Earth, who have decided to circumvent the decision of the gods where they came from. And they are doing it in secret. They have Mm. perverted the human race for their own ends, to sate their own lusts, and to accomplish whatever they want to accomplish. And they're keeping the home planet ignorant of what they're doing, only they don't realize the home planet knows. So the home planets decided, look, you guys are a bunch of criminals. We don't have the time to rehabilitate you, and it would be too much effort, and you've corrupted the entire race that we put in your care. So we're just going to let you all go. It wasn't our decision, but it's coming, and we're letting you all go, which is exactly what happened. And at the time that the Council of Gods decided they were going to let this happen, there was one Enki, as he is referred to in the Sumerian mythology, or he close, most closely relate to Thoth in the Egyptian mythology, and in fact you can find this exact story in chapter 175 of Theban recension of the Book of the Dead with Thoth. Um, he decided to circumvent the decision of the gods. Uh, and what he did was say, look, uh, I promise along with the rest of you, I will not inform mankind of what is coming. We're just going to let it happen. There's, that's that. So to circumvent his promise, which he had planned to do from the very beginning, the subtlest of God's creatures, as the Bible describes him, he said, uh, I promised that I wouldn't tell mankind, so this is what we're going to do. He got a friend of his, and the friend of his went on down to earth with him, and they found a righteous man, who is Noah, or jushudra or uh, Kazizantra, or any number of different names in different mythologies. But he is always the lover of right- righteousness and truth. He's a righteous man. And Enki and his friend find the righteous man, and they go to where he's sleeping, and they set up a screen. And they contrive to wake Noah up, and then they perform this little drama behind the screen for him, in which Enki says, Oh, that I had not promised not to warn mankind of the catastrophe that was coming. (laughs) If I could only let someone know that a massive flood was going to wipe out everything on this planet, if only I could tell them, What I would tell them to do is this. Make an arc by these particular dimensions. I will send someone to pilot it, and on this given date, we're all going to take a little trip somewhere and be safe. By the way, while you're at it, gather the essence of every animal, okay? And we'll take that on board with us. That way, we won't lose everything. That's what I'd tell them if I was able to. (laughs) And, of course, you know that's how Noah gets it. That's how how Enki circumvents his promise, and... Sure enough, a remnant of mankind and all of the seeds of life are saved. So when the world is destroyed, uh, the gods are so horrified by the destruction of the earth that they shake in fear. Uh, But when it's all over, they regret having been so rash as to wipe out all of mankind. And at that point, Enki reveals what he's done and said, Look, guys, uh, I kind (laughs) of, you know, held on to a few. And they forgave him his deception because, after all, they were feeling kind of rash themselves. And that's the story. You'll find it all over the world. And that's how we end up here. And that's how we end up here. Here's a question for you. If the gods,
2: if they're hanging around here and they're, they're okay here back then, why are they sending
0: these robots uh, now? We drove them away. There's, these myth texts go into quite some detail. and They take a while to decipher, but it's well worth doing. Fortunately, a lot of mythologists have already done the work for us, so what we have to do is just look over what they have and piece the fragments together. Uh, we had wars with them. When they initially created us, they created us to ease their burdens, to be their slaves. Right. And in fact, when the serpent circumvented them and told us the truth, when we ate of the knowledge of good and evil, which was, look, if you eat of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then the gods are going to recognize that you're like them, and they're going to be afraid of you because you can rival them. Well, that's exactly what happened. Uh, Adam and Eve eat of the tree of knowledge and then the gods come down. It's it's always Elohim. It's not Yahweh. It's Elohim, which is a plural. The gods. Yeah. The gods come to the Garden of Eden, and they say, um, Hey, where's Adam and Eve? Say they're hiding. Why? Because they're naked. What do you mean they're naked? They know they're naked. What happened? We ate of at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Oh, boy. Well, now the gods are afraid of them, because, as the serpent said, they can rival them. Uh, whatever the gods can do, they can do. They realize that they're not just some some pud thing that was created that has to constantly be at someone else's beck and call, they can do the same thing that God does. So the gods banish them from the garden. They keep them away. And the same thing happens when Nebuchadnezzar builds the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel is something that can reach the heavens. And the gods see this and they say, oh no. (laughs) Now anything that's in their hearts, they will be able to achieve with their hands. We can't allow that. So they destroy the towers, see to it that mankind does not reach space or reach them and spread them around the globe and confuse their speech so that they would not be able to do such a thing very easily again. We see this recurring throughout the Bible and we see it recurring throughout the myth texts. At various times the gods, being people like ourselves, uh, had wars between themselves for supremacy usually, as our own are, and they got us involved in them. I mean after all, why should you go fight and die when you could send someone else to do it in your stead? The exactly. United States does it all the time all the time abroad. Train an army up over there, have them do our dirty work for us. How does that work out for us? Not so well didn't work out so well for them either. Eventually, we kind of decided that we could rebel against them, and we did and we sort of had the war for independence that you saw between us and Britain you know a couple hundred years ago. Uh, What it amounted to was the gods could maintain us if they wanted to. They had the power, certainly. They were stronger than we were. But we outnumbered them, and they had an awful long way to come. So, and I'm going to the Celtic myth texts here, because they're rather explicit. You will find the same variations around the world, but this one spells it out pretty well. Eventually, there came came a peace treaty, essentially, which was negotiated by a god who looks most like Thoth. This god says, okay, look, We're going to go home. We're going to go back to our other world, to the west, beneath the earth, under the ocean. We're going back home. You guys stay here. Now, we reserve the right to take whatever resources we need, all right? And we expect not to be bothered in this. In return, we agree to pretty much stay out of you guys' way. We'll leave you alone. We don't have to worry about you anyway, because you're all going to end up destroying each other, because you suck. (laughs) But in the meantime, we're just going to take care of ourselves, you take care of yourselves, and we'll kind of leave each other alone, all right? We will be keeping an eye on you. Bye. And that's kind of where the story ends. Which explains to me why we're seeing a lot of what we see in UFO activity today. It's nothing new. It's what they've always been doing. They've always been keeping an eye on us, monitoring us, paying attention to what we do. Especially if in any way we might be able to rival them. Which is what happens when we develop nuclear power, the bomb, and space travel. Which, as we all know from the Bible and from the ancient myth texts, is when they stick their nose in. And that's exactly what we see happening in the modern UFO phenomenon.
2: So where do you think all this leads now going forward is sort of an interesting sort of question. Because, I mean, how much – you've unlocked all this, you think. How much do you think the government knows about all this?
0: All of it. Interesting. I think they know all of it. Not only our government, I think quite a few world governments know. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Uh, India Daily, a few years ago – this was about five, six years ago – had an interesting article in which its defense minister just came straight out and said, UFOs exist, they are interplanetary spacecraft, They are piloted by robots, by automata, uh, which sabotage our nuclear development and space development. Ah, he said the exact same thing that I was saying 15 years ago. (laughs) And how did he come to this conclusion? He said, well, initially we thought that our space program and our uh, nuclear development was being sabotaged by the Russians or the Americans. Uh, Then we determined, no, this was beyond their capabilities. And right about that time, guess what? In came the Russians, in came the Americans, and they said, congratulations, now you're a member of the club. You're developing nuclear weapons, you're getting into space. The exact same thing happened to us several years ago, and we blamed each other and realized that there was some third party involved. Now you know the secret, too. Congratulations. So, yeah, they came to the same conclusion. India's joined the club, they know all about it. Anyone that gets into space development or getting out into space and sufficiently developed in nuclear stuff to create bombs Uh, They're going to show up, and it's not going to be too long before that government realizes that whoever is showing up and sabotaging them is not someone from down here. And at that point, they've joined the club. The other guys come out and say, all right, now you know.
2: Hmm. You know, I'm always hoping that we're going to get some answer to all this. Do you think we ever will, or is it sort of the kind of thing – you know, well, I don't even know where you stand on something like another Planet X swing by or something like that. I mean, I'm I'm very intrigued <laughs> where I you don't see know. you know this whole 2012 thing. I mean, there's there's a lot of sort of end of the world prophesizing uh, of late. Um, it seems you know, or disclosure, imminent. Maybe it's just like a, the, the whole quickening idea. I mean, do you think we're we're actually close to getting some kind of answer, or is we're going to be in the dark for a long time still?
0: That's a really good question, and I wish I had an answer for you. To the best I can figure. When it comes to something like 2012, well, we're not going to have to wait too long to find out, are we? No, exactly. (laughs) We'll we'll find out soon enough. Uh, You can't wait a year. I don't know what to tell you. Um, We'll see. When it comes to something like Planet X and when it might swing by again, I do believe there is something out there, and I do believe it has swung by and caused some tremendous disordering and damage in our solar system before. As to when it might come back, not really a clue. I don't know exactly what its orbit would be. What I do know is, if it were of sufficient size to cause the kind of damage we're talking about, we would see it. It would not creep up on us. We yeah. would know many, many, many years in advance before it reached here. So, um, and I don't think that that you could actually have an effective cover up of every astronomer in the world. Someone would see it. Someone would talk about it. And say, "Hey, guess what?" Uh, and the news would get out. So, I right, don't right. think that it. I don't think anything is coming anytime soon, as far as that is concerned. Uh, not in the foreseeable future. And well,
2: what about disclosure and the aliens and the you know the existence and you know the reality of the situation
0: as you see it? Like I'll tell are... you exactly when that will happen. Wow. Okay. That will happen whenever our friends from upstairs decide that they want to land on the White House lawn and do the day the Earth stood still. <laughs> it's up to them. Yep. It's up to them. The second that happens. Every government in the world, this will be really funny. I'm kind of waiting for that day. I'm, I'm just going to have this huge ear-to-ear grin on my face, and you won't be able to pull me away from that TV with anything you got. Uh, as soon as they come down, everyone is going to rush to the podium as fast as they can. Every country they're all going to say, hey, we knew, we knew, we knew, we knew first, we knew all about it. And they're all going to claim credit, and they're all going to all open all of their files, and they'll show everything they've got, and they'll say, see, we knew, we knew all along. What do you say? What do you say? We knew. And, you know, they're just going to be tripping all over themselves trying to claim credit because well, they they do know. Of course they know. Interesting.
2: Okay, so it's really just up to them and when they decide they're going to let us know. Why would the government... So do you think it's uh, intentional that the government doesn't tell us now, or is it sort of self-preservation type of thing?
0: Both. I believe the government is afraid for every reason. Checkbox D, all of the above. They don't want to upset the status quo. That's just for starters. As soon as you admit that there is another race out there that is superior to us, and that they've been around a lot longer than we have. You have to rewrite pretty much everything. you got to rewrite all the history books. You have to reexamine your entire culture, uh, our politics, everything. And they're afraid, all the governments are afraid, of that collapsing. They don't want unrest. Yeah. What they want is to maintain control. And I don't even blame them for that. That makes perfect sense. You don't want people running around in the streets. They're afraid of panic. Uh, They don't want people running around in the streets. They don't want doomsday cults uh, saying, well, you know, God has come back to take us away and and kill the rest of you and fuck (laughs) y'all. They don't want any of that. They want everyone to go on with their lives and to go to their jobs and keep the economy running. Uh, They don't want people panicking or... Preparing for Doomsday or or creating problems, right? So they don't talk about it. Uh, they just kind of keep it under wraps by policy. It, it, forget the word conspiracy. Conspiracy gets thrown around too much and is badly misunderstood. It's policy, and it's been policy from the beginning. You just don't talk about it. Uh, they maintain things in in secrets. They pass the files back and forth. They know what's going on. The people that need to know know. Um, and it's not like the Russians don't know. It's not like India doesn't know. A lot of people know. A lot of governments know. France knows. Britain knows. A whole lot of people know. Yeah. Uh, they may talk about it behind closed doors, much in the same way that we're talking about it now, and I'm sure they do to some extent. Uh, and, and I'm sure they do in the National Security Agency and in the CIA and in a few other government agencies and bureaus. Uh, where it becomes important. The National Security Council, yes, of course they know. Do they discuss it? Yes, when it's important, along with uh, relations between the United States and Russia, China, Britain, and all the other stuff that they talk about. Uh, It's just one more thing on the table that they discuss, that they prefer to keep away from the public at large because they're afraid of what kind of repercussions there might be if people realized the truth.
2: Very intriguing. So this is, we sort of really unstrung the whole theory here. I find it very interesting. And, you, and you, like you, Like you said earlier, you really don't equivocate on this. You're pretty certain of it all, which is uh, refreshing.
0: I'm very certain of it all. As I said before, it does go without saying I could be wrong. However, I've got my evidence all lined up, and I have presented it in a couple of books, and if someone wants to attack the theories and the arguments, that's fine, but I'm going on the theories and the arguments, because as far as I'm concerned, they're solid.
2: Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. So, like, the modern era really kind of kicked off because of the whole nuclear development and moving into space, and,
0: yeah. Absolutely. yeah. That's exactly when you see it taking off. There is evidence of it before that. There's evidence of it all the way back in the ancient world, and it is consistent. But where you see it really taking off is from the moment that we set off bombs down here. As soon as we set off nuclear bombs, there they were. They were at the Trinity test site. You can get this from a book called The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes, a Pulitzer Prize winner. This is not from a UFO book. This is from a science book about the making of the atomic bomb, a history book. What happened at the Trinity test site was there were these UFOs flying around uh, before, during, and after the Trinity test, the explosion of the first atomic bomb in uh, in the world, at least in the modern era. And um, all the scientists involved with that project were wondering what the UFOs were. So they went to Leslie Groves, who was the head of the project, the military guy, the colonel, and they asked him, and he said, well, I don't know, I'll look into it. Weeks go by, they never find out. They're still seeing the UFOs up there. They're obviously paying attention to their atomic tests. So they bring it back up to the colonel, and the colonel says, oh, um, those are the planets, the planets is Venus and Jupiter, which is the exact same thing we've been told since.
1: Let me sort
2: of tack some modern stuff in onto this whole thing. Now, a lot of people think that there's some kind of deal between the government and the aliens. In this case, that would be the gods, I guess you could say. Uh, <clears throat> you know, exchange of technology-type situations or or the reverse engineering idea from the crashed stuff. What's your take on, on that whole thing? Do you think the government, you know, is, is in cahoots with the aliens at this point or they're still sort of kept at arm's length?
0: Well, there's no doubt in my mind that there's been reverse engineering involved. Uh, in fact, um, that's certainly the reason that we kept Roswell under wraps, or the primary reason we kept it under wraps, was so we could exploit whatever technology we had grabbed a hold of. I cannot fault any self-respecting government for wanting to do that. That makes perfect sense to me, because that is for the betterment of the country, and hopefully, in a broader sense, for the betterment of the world. I would like to believe that some of us are capable of that, though I have severe doubts. But I'm quite certain that... It was kept under wraps so they could exploit the technology in their possession, and there are a great many documents that will support that, that have been released through the Freedom of Information Act. As to being in cahoots, I don't think so, but I really don't know. Uh, I have to assume that there has been some form of contact between governments on this planet and their government out there, or their governments out there. I don't know how many governments they might have. We're one planet, and we have how many different governments here, and how well do we all get along? <laughs> exactly. So even if these guys all come from just one planet, let alone a bunch, and they might come from a bunch, but even if they came from just one, I don't know that we're not seeing some Russian ships down here, some U.S. ships down here, some British, French, Indian, what have you. I don't know who else is coming down here or what their take on us is or what their take on each other is. The point is we are... Becoming aware of a galactic community out there. And that galactic community has obviously shown some interest in us. So I have to assume that at least some of their governments or some of their representatives have in some way contacted ours down here. Yeah. Uh, I do not know what kind of communication that would have been, um, how oblique or how direct. I really would not have any way of saying. That's entirely guesswork. But I have no doubt whatsoever that we've been exploiting their technology. When we created the atomic bomb, uh, Oppenheimer, in an interview, uh, once said, he was asked by uh, an interviewer, was this the first atomic bomb explosion in in history at Trinity? And he said, well, yes, in modern history. And he was specific by slipping that word in. And Truman, in his notes, had mentioned uh, in his notebook, said that we had resurrected an ancient technology that was truly terrifying, and he was referring to the bomb.
2: Interesting. These aliens, man. Troublesome. Yes. <laughs> the whole thing is troublesome. Yes, or, or we are. Take it pick. Well, we definitely are. Well, it sort of raises the idea, the issue, the concept, I guess you could say, that, you know, it's like we revered these gods in ancient times, but it, it, maybe we've reached a level now where we're... On par with what, almost with what they had been when they came here
0: originally in the first place. Like we have become gods in a way. It's very. Hence the title Independence Day. Yes, and like in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think that's a lot of what it's about. That is initially what happened in the ancient mythologies. Uh, we grew to rival them exactly as they were afraid we would. Planet of the Apes. It's like, look, we outnumber them now. We know what they know. Uh, we can chase them out of here, and we did. Uh, but they're still around. Yeah, and they they keep tabs on us. Um, The real question is, there's a theory that says, well, they deliberately keep us down. They don't want us to get up. Yeah, to a certain extent, that's true. I wouldn't argue that. But only to a certain extent. To the same extent, say that we don't want various countries coming up with the atomic bomb. Right. For very understandable reasons. And we go to great lengths to sabotage their development, uh, to intervene, and see to it that they do not create those weapons. When we see India and Pakistan shooting missiles at each other, and they've got active warheads, we're saying, all right, look, <laughs> no, no, we can't have this. You know, welcome to the planet of the apes. We, we understand where you are and what you're doing, and you can't do that. We've already been doing that with each other, and guess what? It doesn't go anywhere good, so we're going to see to it that you don't do it either. And, yeah, I do believe that there's a certain amount of that going on. But I also think that they must be concerned at least some of them, must be concerned with our development probably for the better, for the very simple reason that they recognize we must be joining their community at some point. If they had intended us any harm, we would be harmed. If they had intended to conquer or invade us, they could have done so when we were when we were in horse and buggy or even in caves, but they have not. So I don't believe that is their intent. And if that is not their intent, then they must intend to have some kind of open communication with us at some point and presumably, as in the day the Earth stood still, to try and welcome us into their particular community, provided, of course, we live by their rules.
2: I I see your point that they're not trying to destroy us, because we'd be wiped out by now. I don't understand the people that think... The scary part, though, is that we we could still be, like, second-class citizens to these aliens. I mean, we are, actually, so... I will admit that, yes. You know, even if they came down here and wanted to hang out and everything, it'd be like, we'd be...
1: You know, we'd we'd end up chasing them out.
0: Yeah. (laughs) They would be swimming. Uh, there'd be no question of that. And then, then you just have to hope that when they came down here, uh, we wouldn't have too many people that would be swindled for beats and rattles.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about your journey here, because uh, we teased it at the beginning of the show, and and uh, you know now that we've laid out all this all this work that you know, that you've done to unlock the UFO enigma. This kind of ties it all back around again, because uh, you you uh, recently have uh, made a journey. So tell me about this.
0: Well, when you got in touch with me, I I just happened to have come back from Egypt. That was just a few days back. It's been a couple weeks now. I had an opportunity to go on a trip with Robert Bavall and his brother Jean-Paul, who's a professional engineer, and Christopher Knight was also on this trip. Uh, They were giving some very professional presentations on their own research into Egypt. Uh, Christopher Knight got a little bit into masonry because he's a mason, Uh, We had some esoteric people with us on this particular group, quite a few of them, in fact, uh, a number of whom were Masons or connected to uh, what is called the Osti Knights Templar lineage, who are very, very interesting people. They're extremely intelligent and very esoterically inclined and studied. So we spent about five days, very intensive five days, I would say, pretty much covering everything there was to cover about the pyramids. We were in and out of the pyramids, up and down Everywhere you could go, we went. We checked everything that there was to check. So when it comes to pyramids, I can tell you everything there is to say. Uh, that doesn't have to be referenced in a book, when it, because when you get to measurements, wow, uh, there are all kinds of things to be said about that when it comes to pyramids. But anyway, we studied the pyramids. We had lots of extremely intellectual conversations up to and including uh, the possibility of extraterrestrials. Uh, Robert bavall who is an extremely intelligent man, uh, has studied Egypt for most of his life and written extensively about it. Uh, he does not rule out uh, the possibility of extraterrestrials. I don't think he prefers that theory, but he definitely has not ruled it out. He keeps it on the table. Yeah. Uh, I got to show him my uh, pictures of the face of RAW on Mars and the rest of the group. I was able to present that. And uh, I don't want to put words in In Robert's mouth, this is up to him to say. Uh, He did not confirm or deny that he noticed that it was there. What he did say was he gave it about a 50-50 chance and that it was well worth pursuing uh, further investigation.
2: Nice, nice. So did you, like, learn, you know, it's sort of a broad question, but, like, did you learn or see or pick up anything on the trip? I'm sure it's like a myriad of things, um, you know, that strengthened your convictions about this
0: whole, uh, you know, theory of the gods and the UFOs. Yes. Uh, one of those things is something that Baval himself noticed uh, about, what, 15, 17 years ago, somewhere in that neck of the woods, shortly before I wrote, and I did refer to it in my own book, and that was the correlation between the Pyramids of Giza and the, belts, uh, the stars of Orion's belt. Uh, he could, in fact, take it further, which I did, and connect it to the Teotihuacan complex in Mexico. The same three pyramids in that complex also mirror the stars of Orion's belt. In 1975, there was a a pair of authors who wrote a book called Destiny Mars in Britain. One of them was a mathematician named M. W. Saunders, and the other was a famous Scottish astronomer named Duncan Lunan. Uh, In their book, they came to the conclusion, uh, without trying to, to promote extraterrestrials or anything like that, they just said, look, We don't know what the reason for this is, but the pyramids of the Teotihuacan complex and the pyramids of the Giza complex together describe an orbital rotation lock with the planet Mars. There are also a great many measurements of Mars and Mars' moons incorporated in the Great Pyramid. We don't know why this is the case. We're just telling you that it is the case. Hmm. Well, the book never went very far, and it's very, very hard to find, and I have not been able to read it myself. I've had to read summaries and conclusions from other parties, because it's just not found. But these are very, you know, high-credentialed people who are posing this, and I believe that they're completely correct. Uh, Boval is correct. They mirror the stars in Orion's belt. Uh, Saunders and Lunan are correct, that they describe an orbital rotation lock with the planet Mars, and the reason that they would describe an orbital rotation lock with the planet Mars is because someone needed an orbital rotation lock with the planet Mars. In other words, they're not pretty pictures. They're there to be used. They serve a great many functions. The pyramids serve many functions. But one of those, at least in those two complexes, is to help people who are navigating between Earth and Mars. And I've pretty much got the word of Saunders and Lunin on that. And like I said, Baval is correct as far as the the Orion belt thing is concerned, which takes us back to the ten thousand five hundred BC date, or close to uh, what we have for an Atlantis destruction date, which if I remember right was I said like ninety seven hundred BC for Plato or what he thought. We're talking about, you know, a close correlation here within a thousand years or even five hundred years uh, between Plato's account. Uh, the 10,500 B.C. correlation of the Orion Belt stars being directly over the Giza complex and mirroring the pyramids exactly, and a 10,500 B.C. date that keeps seeming to recur around the world as to when this complex was built, or at least when it was started the first time, the Zep Tepi, in Egyptian mythology. This would be why the Sphinx is a lion and gazing due east, because 10,500 years ago, it would have been looking at Regulus, or the heart of the lion, Leo, in the sky. It would be looking at its mirror image. And these pyramids, these structures, are mirroring the stars and mirroring the Milky Way, because that's how the Egyptians looked at things. They understood the precession of the equinox. The only way to understand the precession of the equinox is to study the stars for thousands of years. How did the Egyptians know it? We know that they knew it. It's in their mythology. It's in the numbers in their mythology. And they recount it pretty specifically. The Sumerians knew it, too. So they didn't get it from nowhere. Either someone handed it to them, or they had been studying it for thousands of years and figured it out. But you really have no other way to go except those two paths right there. Interesting. Now, the
2: 10,500 is when the complex was built, you're saying, because originally you said you thought, that Mars was
0: destroyed like half a million years ago. So we're still trying to... Well, the you know. complex on Mars was built a half million years ago. As to when it was destroyed, I don't know. Uh, okay. It was probably built about a half million years ago. So you don't think... Okay, okay. So
2: so you're saying that the destruction of Mars, the whole thing with the Planet X and the asteroid belt and all that, wasn't necessarily
0: half million years ago? Could have been as recent as just twelve or 13,000 years ago. Ah, oh, okay. I'm really not sure. I don't know. Oh, okay. And as a matter of fact, I'm not sure the astronomers would know either.
2: Hmm, okay. So that would put them in line with being able to travel back and forth from Mars
0: to Earth and everything. Sure. Uh, technically, I think there are probably still some people there. They they would be living under the surface, and there is some reason from our probe data to believe that they might be. Uh, when the Phobos probes were there, we've had several interesting things from the probes that have been sent there both by the United States and Mars. Yeah. Uh, one of the things the Phobos probes picked up was a rectilinear grid pattern that was huge, that was photographed only by the infrared cameras, not by the surface
1: cameras. And the head
0: of the London Science Museum said, if I didn't know better, I'd swear that was an aerial view of Los Angeles. (laughs) Uh, The implication is it's beneath the surface, it was in the equatorial region, and obviously that implication then would be that there's an underground city there, or something like.
2: Or could it be a city that got just wiped out? like, covered with some stuff, you know, like uh, like a Pompeii-type situation?
0: Why would it still be hot? It's still ready. Oh, okay. Ah, heat source. All right, all right. Now, mind you, it could just be some weird kind of rectilinear grid of thermal vents, but it does look like an aerial view of the city.
2: Interesting, interesting. Tell me a little bit more about this trip. Uh, I'd be scared to go down to Egypt this time, of, you know, after all the uprisings and everything. <laughs> was it like, what was the, you know, on a... What's the climate? Yeah, on a pure sociological level,
0: what was, that, what was that experience like? Well, first off, just I don't want to alarm anybody. In fact, I would like to beef up tourism for Egypt. Uh, you don't have anything to worry about in Egypt. You're not going to get shot or you're not going to get robbed. Things are, are perfectly stable. there and are perfectly comfortable. Uh, however, like I said, we had uh, people in our group who were of the Austi-Templar lineage and who were Freemasons. Technically, Freemasonry is illegal in Egypt. as oh, it is in, As it is in most, if not all, Islamic countries. Um, which tells you something about the United States. This is one of those times where, yes, everybody, if you're in the United States or in the U.K. listening right now, count your blessings and recognize what the Founding Fathers did when they created the Constitution. You, you can talk about things here. You can go to your lodge. You can go to your church, and everything is fine. Well, you can't really do that in Egypt. That's all underground, and technically it's illegal. Uh, they are a little bit touchy, especially now, Uh The people in this particular lineage and a lot of the Freemasons, one of their primary symbols is what we call the Star of David, or the symbol of the Temple of Solomon. Uh, So in Egypt, that is interpreted as, oh, these are Zionists, therefore they are the enemy. They have to be wiped out, they have to be kept out, they're dangerous, be careful. So they're just automatically labeled as Zionists. When we were in the bus on the first night going out to dinner at an Egyptian restaurant, uh, several of us were talking about linguistics between modern Arabic and uh, modern Egyptian and ancient Egyptian, uh, one of which had to do with the sound ha. And uh, everyone was coming up with different examples of the ha sound, and of course I had mentioned Lachayim. And as soon as I did that... uh, Robert Beval's brother, Jean-Paul, was a very nice man, and, and they both spent a lot of time in Egypt. Robert was born there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He just gave me a look, and <laughs> he said, you, you don't want to say that too loud here. <laughs> he said, oh, wow i 'm the bus driver. And I immediately took a point and said, yeah, yeah, yeah I just have what you're saying, and I didn't anymore. But, you know, we just take it for granted. It's like it's not a big thing. I'm just giving an example of the sound. There's, it's Jewish sound. It's like that. It's as well, yeah. You can talk about the sound, but you don't want to throw a Jewish word on top of that. Not right now. Not in Egypt. They're a little bit touchy. Got to be careful about that. Uh, but you know, no one's going to beat you up over it. I'll just put it that way. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like, yes, yeah, you know, it's not like traveling to Afghanistan or something. It's not like traveling to Afghanistan, though. No. There are no active landmines. No one's running around with guns. No one's going to shoot you. You're fine.
1: Yeah, and I think they Uh,
0: probably like people who come to see the pyramids. I mean, that's oh, absolutely. Yeah, they don't want to upset the tourist business because that—that's all they've got. That's literally all they've got. Um, Seriously, Egypt is a third world country. They're very poor. You'll find hawkers everywhere. People are always up trying to sell you something. Because they don't have any money. They don't have anything. Now, mind you, it's a completely different style. it's a completely different way of life there. They're much more content with life than we are. Uh, they don't live the sort of hectic life that we do. They're content with what they have. Yeah. But they are a poor country. And uh, right now, especially with the recent political unrest, they're, they're a little bit touchy. You do want to be kind of careful about what to talk about and where. Uh, but yeah, certainly they want the tourism business to stay intact and and thriving. No question of that.
2: Now I know the guy who used to run the whole antiquities there, uh, Hawass. Hawas. Hawass. Now was, he was very like, you know, uh, pro-human. I guess you could say with the pyramids. He he really didn't get into any of the, or at least didn't endorse any of the esoteric side of all this. Has the mood no, changed not.
0: at Maybe all? He could squash it. Zahi's been fired. Yeah. That's what I mean.
2: Has the mood, has the mood changed mm-hmm. since, uh, since the changing of the guard in, in the antiquities?
0: Yes and no. Uh, yeah, I think you will find a great deal more openness from the current people who are more or less in charge of that, and it's not like there's an official person in charge. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think you'll find a more open climate with them. I we'll put it this way. Robert Bavall and this group were talking pretty openly about some of this stuff. I mean, we're not doing it on TV or in front of uh, the ministry or anything like that. But, you know, they're, they're open to our discussing it and talking about it. They don't have a problem with that. In fact, I think they're kind of interested themselves. They just don't want to admit it.
2: Now, what about, like, the everyday people that you run into over there? Uh, are they... You know what's there? Because I mean, you know, they're living with this huge, oh yeah, landmark like in their backyard and everything, and, and and I'm sure that they have their own perspective on like where it all came from. What what do they think?
0: You know what their perspective is. It's like I live right next. To, I see the Rocky Mountains every day to the west of me. Yeah, and I've seen them my entire life. They're a landmark by which I navigate. Which you can do in Egypt with the pyramids, by the way. They make perfect theodolites and in the ancient world. They would have been incredible for that particular purpose. But you take them for granted. You don't even think about it. Laval said that himself. He said after you, after you spend some years here, you completely forget they're there. Yeah. Unless you know a fog rolls in and covers them, and then someone says, "Hey, where's the pyramid?" Yeah. And <laughs> you say, "Oh, I'll be damned. Is the pyramid supposed to be there?" But they take them for granted. Uh, they don't think twice about them. To so them, it's a source of income. you got some hawkers who like to hang out and sell statues and beads and rattles, and whatever else they can sell to the tourists who come by. So they don't really – but
2: but so they must have opinions on, like, where it came from and everything. I mean, is there sort of like a general consensus amongst the people that, that is any different than what we might expect?
0: They could give a crap. Wow. Okay. They could give a crap. They don't, I, don't think they, I don't think they ever give it a passing thought. If they do, um, you can't go on a tour – without having an officially approved minister guide. Hmm. Uh, and what that officially approved minister guide is, is just someone who has memorized the speeches that come from the standard traditional Egyptology handbooks. Right. In other words, you're going to be told all about how Cheops built the Great Pyramid as his tomb, and how he was buried there, and how tomb robbers took his body away, and that's why we never found it there. Which is all bullshit. It always was from day one. But that's what you're going to be told. Now, if you go with a good tour, like we did, then we pay our guides to shut up, to just follow us around and say, look, you're being paid to do this. We already know the spiel, and we know it's bullshit. If you're interested and want to learn something, we'll tell you. <laughs> but you can just tag along if you like, and not have to say a thing, and we'll give you your money. And they say, cool, no problem. I could give a crap. Yeah. So you give them their money. They're happy, and uh, you get to talk about what you want to talk about and get into the serious stuff.
2: Now, having you know studied these things for years and having been there and everything, and you said at one point that the pyramids were definitely used as a navigation device, what other stuff do you think they were used for?
0: Well, they were used, as NASA puts it, for landing footprints. They were used as a navigational device for travel between Earth and Mars. They were definitely, the Giza complex at least, and the Great Pyramid especially, had to have been used for an initiatory purpose at one point. I'm absolutely convinced of that. If I learned nothing else on this trip, and I did learn quite a bit, but if I learned nothing else, I picked up something that I'm amazed I have not read anyplace else. We happened to have at least one Jew with us on this trip. Mm -hmm. And that Jew happened to come down the descending passage into the well, the well chamber at the bottom of the pyramid. Now, I've never found an Egyptologist who has been, ever, been able to come up with any explanation whatsoever for why that well chamber is there or why that well is there. They have no idea. It's just there. They say, well, maybe they built it originally for some drainage purpose or something like that, and then they changed their mind, and then they built everything up, up over it, and wah, whatever. Mm-hmm. We don't know. But there's this whole long descending passage that goes down to this chamber uh, underneath the pyramid, and all it is is a limestone chamber just kind of roughly hewn out of rock with a well sitting in the middle of it, which, as I recall, it's about waist height. I didn't go down this time. I went down 17 years ago because uh, some interesting energy things happen when you go down or up in, in the pyramid. And if you go down and then you don't go back up, it's, it's going to mess you up a little bit. So I didn't go down this trip, but I remember it being about waist height or that neck of the woods. And it's a well, I think it goes down about 20-30 feet, something like that. It, it had some kind of brackish water in it originally, but it doesn't really lead anywhere. Well, the Jew on our team went down there, and he was unequivocal in stating what it was. He said, this is a mikveh." And you know, we say, what's a mikveh?" Because we don't know. Yeah. He says, "That's it's kind of a Jewish baptismal font. It's a ceremonial font, if you will, uh, for ritual washing. Well, what would a ritual washing font be doing at the bottom of the pyramid in this descending chamber. Well, if you know anything about initiatory bodies and I do, then that would be because you're performing initiations there. That's where you start the initiation. You go down there, you get your your baptism or your cleansing uh, and that starts you on the journey. Then you would climb up that passage and then you would go up to the other differing passages ending in the king's chamber which makes perfect sense out of why the entrance into the King's Chamber is so low. It's got this very, very low tunnel that you have to stoop to get through. And this is part of the initiatory process as well. You always have to stoop. Uh, you're humbling yourself in order to enter the Holy of Holies. And it's like Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. Only the penitent man shall pass, and he falls to his knees, and the saw blade goes over his head. It's like that. Yeah. Um, so that's why they would build that passage so ridiculously low because it has an initiatory purpose. And, and this, these are things the Egyptologists have never been able to make sense out of. they look at well, why are they doing it like this? Why are they doing it like that? That's why. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm sure there were lots of purposes. There was a lot that they were doing with these pyramids. They were using them for astronomical observation. Uh, that's why you have the uh, sight lines that go out from the Queen's Chamber and the King's Chamber to uh, the different sides of the pyramid that are sighting specific car, star complexes at that 10,500 B.C. date and possibly... Uh, about mid third or mid fourth century BC, also. That, that's debatable. Uh, or millennium BC, excuse me. That's debatable, but there certainly were sighting stars out of those uh, particular lines that yeah. go out to the, the outside of the pyramid. So it was being used for for astronomical observations, it was being used for ritual initiations, it was being used for interplanetary steerage in order to get from one planet to another and navigation. Uh, It was being used for theodolites. In the ancient world you could see the pyramids, especially when they were covered in their hundred inches of white limestone uh, all over, you could see those damn things all across the ancient world. It's a flat desert for God's sake. You're coming from hundreds of miles away, you see the damn pyramids. Well, the way that they're built and their size and the way that they're the one is slightly offset, wherever you are in position to those pyramids, if you understand how to use a theodolite, you will know exactly how far away you are from Egypt and exactly what your location is just by looking at the damn pyramids.
1: What's, a, the- a, the- what's a theodolite? And, uh,
0: what now? What's a theodolite? A theodolite is very simple. It's a surveying thing. If you, It's like a plumb line. Okay. If you just uh, hold out a string with a weight on the end of it, and if you're accustomed to gauging the size... Uh, what you do is you hold that up next to something recognizable like the pyramids. Or if you know how big the pyramids are and you hold this plumb line up to them from wherever you're at, then you can tell by relating the size of your plumb line to the size of those pyramids uh, exactly how far away you are. And You can tell by looking at the relation of the pyramids to each other exactly what direction you're in. Just like looking at the Rocky Mountains, I always know I'm looking west. Well, if I'm looking at the pyramids, depending on their orientation, I can tell you just what direction I am. Northwest, northeast, south, whatever. (laughs) And I can do this from hundreds of miles away. So they're as good as navigational beacons on land as they are from space. The United States Air Force, this is fun, I love this one. The United States Air Force Equal Service Projection Map shows the pyramid. I have this in my book. Dead center of the Earth's land mass. It's dead center of Egypt's land mass, and it's dead center of the Earth's land mass. It's oriented north, south, east, and west better than any structure that has ever been built before or since. Why? And how did they know that? If they didn't know the world was round, how could they possibly know where the center of it was and build a pyramid there? I don't think they built it. I think the aliens built it. That's exactly what I'm saying.
2: <laughs> I, I know. I know. I'm in agreement. I'm just I saying, don't... you know, it's just too advanced to have been made by the people that we that we, that we have portrayed the ancients to be—it's a, it's a whole contradiction in a sense. I'm surprised. I'm amazed, really, that, that humankind, I guess, has kind of forgotten about this in a sense, or or, or has is too busy with with pop culture and mortgages and everything else to really tie it all in, at, you know, and figure this all out?
0: A lot of it was destroyed by the establishment. Uh, for instance, there was a mythical figure named Votan, uh, which sounds exactly like Votan or Votan in the. Uh, Norse mythology and fills pretty much the same function. He was a god of writing and learning. He's a lot like Foth. He was in Mexico uh, sometime in the past and he is spoken of as a god. He wrote some tablets and wrote some uh, books that he left behind containing all of his wisdom and these were burned by the Bishop Núñez de la Vega in the 17th century. Along with a lot of other learning uh, structures that have been destroyed. Uh, we've had it to happen here in Colorado. We've got some sites that have apparent Celtic Ogham writing that have been sandblasted or destroyed. Uh, you'll find the establishment always destroying these things right. over the ages. We invaded Iraq. What has happened to the Baghdad Battery? What has happened to all the clay tablets? What has happened to all of the things that were in the museum? And six thousand years of history. Where are those now? No one knows. They've either been destroyed or they've been looted. They've been sold. They're sitting in somebody's vault. They're gone. Six thousand years of history wiped out, just like that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, it's
2: beneficial for them not for us not to figure it all out or think about it. Or it's it's you know we're talking about thousands and thousands of years of, of time, and you know it, it sort of drives on the insignificance of of one small human life in a sense.
0: Too. Entire epochs of time. Yes. When we're talking just 10,500 B.C., we're talking 12,500 years ago, we might as well be talking a million. When we're talking a half million years ago to the Mars complex, we're talking epochs of time so vast we have no conception of them. You have to understand, when Alexander the Great went to Egypt, the pyramids were as ancient to him, as distant to him, as Alexander is to us. And he had even less understanding of what those pyramids were than we do. That's powerful stuff, yeah. Yeah, when you think about it,
2: it's pretty amazing.
0: When you're sitting around the uh, Thanksgiving Day uh, table, does this mean it? Do you actually mean this when you say this? Uh, Mom, can I, can I help you with anything? No, of <laughs> course.
1: You don't really you mean, don't mean that, it. do you? No.
2: You're listening to Banal of America Audio.
1: <laughs> Here I am, 5 o'clock in the morning, stuffing breadcrumbs up a dead bird's butt. <laughs>
2: It's also kind of amazing that you, know, you talk about things being destroyed and stuff, and you just it's stunning in a way, too, that they've managed to survive all this time. You'd think that, like, I don't know. I mean, like, you saw, like, the they had those really amazing, like, Buddhist statues in, in uh, I think, Afghanistan, and the, and the Taliban, like, destroyed them for, like, oh, religious yeah, reasons. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it's scary almost in a sense that no one's tried to destroy yeah. the pyramids or destroy the spangles well, or anything
1: have.
0: like that. <laughs> they well, have. I'm sure they have, but. If you look at the pyramids, uh, what you'll notice, I sent you a picture of me in front of them with a camel with a silly grin. Mm -hmm. Was that me with a silly grin? One of us does. Oh, wait, we both do. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, there I am in front of the pyramid. You'll notice these, you know, ragged blocks. They're all perfectly fitted together, but it's these levels, these tiers of ragged blocks. Originally, there was 100 inches of white limestone all the way around all of those pyramids, and they were smooth all the way up. All the ancients referred to it that way. Well, after Khalif al-Mamun broke into the Great Pyramid in 820 A.D. and didn't find any treasure, they went to an awful lot of time and trouble and pretty much found nothing. Uh, So they ended up stripping all the white limestone off the outside of the pyramids to build mosques with which you'll find some beautiful mosques if you drive through Egypt. They're, they're everywhere. You've got these beautiful white mosques everywhere. And that's all with the limestone casing from the pyramids that they built that. So they did kind of pull them apart, at least on the outside. And uh, it's only by vandalism, basically, that we managed to find the interior of the Great Pyramid at all. We didn't know where the opening was. We didn't know anything about it. Uh, Khalif al-Mamun, going on the basis of the historical records and the legends, decided where the opening must be, and it took him a long time fiddling around with that to finally manage a break through to the interior of the pyramid. Uh, that's how we get into it today. We wouldn't get into the pyramid today or know what was in there to even be discussing it if Khalif al-Mamun and his men had not spent a hell of a lot of time and a hell of a lot of effort breaking their way in there. <laughs>
2: Interesting. I mean, you think there's probably stuff in there that we don't even haven't been told about? I presume too. rethink. think like secret Presumably, rooms and yes. secret chambers and all kinds of secret stuff.
0: Entirely possible, yes. Well, just for starters, how long ago was it? Uh, and again, bringing up Robert Bavall. Robert Bavall was working with Rudolf Gantenbrink on trying to figure out what was up in those chambers and those uh, sighting lines from the Queen's Chamber to the stars.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, first off, there's a slight bend or a slight break in that tunnel, we'll call them tunnels, it's shafts, there are two shafts, Uh, two going out from the Queen's Chamber, two going out from the King's. They are investigating the shafts in the Queen's Chamber. Now these don't go straight out, they have a slight bend at one point, which means at one point they were looking out at one spot and then they changed the direction and were looking out at another. Or at least that's how it appears, unless there's some other bizarre esoteric reason that we haven't figured out yet for why they would do this. Okay, so the obvious question then becomes: Why don't we go through this shaft and see what we can find? So Rudolf Gantbrink made this robot, which went on up there and found a door with copper handles, Hmm. some rusted copper handles. Uh, Well, why would anyone put a door in a shaft that no one's even intended to look through? You know, let alone open anything for. If you've got handles, plainly you're intending to open something. But there it is. No challenging you. It's a puzzle. Saying, all right, I uh, stuck a door here. Open it up, dude. <laughs> so they finally got some permission from Dr. Zayus. I'm sorry, Zai Hawas, to send another robot up there with some laser optic fiber wire, et cetera, and so forth, all those- uh, state-of-the-art high-tech stuff door opening that's, equipment that door opening equipment it's, it's a look behind <laughs> the door what it does is take a little fiber optic oh, nose cool. and stick it through uh, some kind of little opening that's there and then look around what's behind the door now could you is this I'm trying to like paint a mental picture here is this like door like so
2: why do you have to send a robot it's like in such a tiny little space that you can't even actually get in there
0: what we're talking is, yes it's a space of just a few inches oh weird
2: how so how big's the door
0: uh, I'm, I'm not sure the exact dimensions. I think it's like, uh, is it eight inches wide? It's, it's, it's tiny a tiny door. It's a tiny it? door. Right. It's small. Weird. We're talking about a shaft that's only a few inches wide by a few inches high. So you got to make this little robot just and to uh, go with in. It, you know, little treads on it, and it's little fiber optic, you know, <laughs> tentacle, and it goes all the way up there and it sticks its cute little thing in behind whatever little opening there's like an opening up there. Yeah. I think where the handles are. Uh, I'd have to check on the specifics of that, but Volk could tell you more about that. Uh, I'll need to pick up his book on that particular subject. In any event, it sticks his little nozzle back there and it looks around, and what does it find? Another door. There's a door behind the door. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, at this point, Gatenberg gives up, okay? He just says, you know what? I'm done with this. (laughs) I've seen everything there is. See? There's a door behind the door. We could just keep pulling doors behind doors, behind doors, and we don't know what's there. There also happened to be some symbols behind that first door, which they were able to see. These are very difficult to describe. I have seen them. Uh, there are three symbols. Uh, they do not look like any kind of Egyptian hieroglyphics we've ever seen before. And in fact, they don't look like any language we recognize. So we don't know what they are, but they're just some kind of symbols on the door. I do have to say, because it's kind of funny, that the middle one looks a lot like the Stargate SG-1 symbol with the A and the little circle on top of it. <laughs> it, it really does look like that. Well, but This this was discovered after the Stargate series was up, but I do have to say that. That's kind of funny. Interesting. So no one's gone past the, se- the first door yet that we know of. Well, we've we've seen past the first door and seen those symbols on the other side of it, and right. we've seen that there's a second door there.
2: Yeah, no I'm, Yeah, that's what I meant. Like, no one's gone through the second
0: door yet. No one's gone through the second door yet, no. Weird. It's been waiting like that. Baval complains about this all the time. Uh, like I said, Gant and Brink just kind of gave up on it. He said, you know what, I'm done. And if they did it again, I'm sure he'd get involved and say, okay, sure, let's get another robot and get it up there. But he hasn't been pushing to get any further move on that. Uh, Baval and a small number of other people have been pushing to try and get uh, some more work done on that and to try and look behind the second door or to get the the first one opened and and maybe get behind the second one, too.
1: In other words, they want to go
0: further with it. And I don't blame them. I would like to go further with it, too. To me, it's a puzzle. In fact, at this point, just looking at everything that's there, uh, there's a kind of a pleasant taunting aspect to it, which is almost playful. It's kind of like saying, okay, look, You know there's not supposed to be a door here, don't you? This is really stupid. I mean, this is as out of the way as anything could possibly be, kind of like a pyramid in the middle of the desert. (laughs) So while you're looking at stuff that shouldn't be here but is, let me tease you with this. See this door? Guess what's behind it? Another door. You want to keep looking? Come on. You know you do. So, yeah, I could be holding the uh, football for Charlie Brown to run up and kick, but by the same token, I think there's actually something back there, and someone's just been waiting for us to come find it. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's weird. Now, I presume this shaft, because you have to make a robot to go in there, is like so long you can't
0: just stick your arm in or anything like that. Oh, no, no, no. We're talking, yeah, many, 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 many feet. Yeah. Uh, hundreds of feet. I mean, it's yeah, it's a considerable distance. I don't know the exact uh, yeah, dimensions yeah. on that. But uh, It just makes you wonder how they expected people to even get... get to a little door. Why would you do it? When you look at everything in Egypt, this is what's funny. You're always stuck with the question less of how, and that is always in the back of your mind. How the hell did you guys do this? We cannot build pyramids. We can't do it today. How did they do it? We don't know. In all that sand, rock, and papyrus, not a single record of how they built the pyramids or how they, they, they lift all these incredible weights and put them into place the way that they did. Not one record. None of it. So we don't have the slightest clue how they did it. And Jean-Paul Beauval, who is a professional engineer, uh, he's constantly raising those questions. He'll just kind of illustrate the point that this, this can't be here. And then when you say, well, how did they do it? He, he'll just kind of shrug and say, it was easy. And then I like to throw the question myself with a grin on my face and say, okay, what was that easy way? And then he just smiles back and he says, I don't know. But they did. (laughs) It was easy for them. That's the point. We don't get it, but whatever they were doing, it was easy for them. If it wasn't, they wouldn't have done it with blocks that big. It just wouldn't have been practical in any way, shape, or form. But once you get past that question, like how the hell did they do this, you're still left with the other one, which is why. When you go someplace like Maidam or Dashur, these are right next to each other. They are in the middle of the desert in the middle of fucking nowhere.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, this is bumfuck Egypt. When they are talking about bumfuck Egypt, this is where they mean Matem and Doshur. You'll get nothing but sand, dirt in every direction. Nothing there, except two pyramids within inside of each other. One of them, the Bent Pyramid, is one of the freakiest looking things you will ever see in your life. That was just bizarre beyond words. Uh, that's also been substantially vandalized uh, toward the bottom section up about... Oh, it's anywhere from th- about 30 to 50 feet. Um, a lot of the uh, substantial blocks at the base have been pulled out. And you can see where someone did this. We have no idea who. It was yeah. sometime in history. Someone obviously vandalized a lot of the lower area blocks, presumably looking for some kind of treasure, the way that Khalif al Mamun was doing with the Great Pyramid. Uh, at what time, we don't know. Who did it, we don't know. But obviously someone did, and then they stopped. So you've got kind of this jagged portion pulled out here and there at the base of this freaky-looking pyramid. And it goes up at a slope at a particular angle up a particular distance, and then it just changes direction. It goes up at a different angled slope, at a tighter angle on the inside. Now, the traditional Egyptologists will tell you that was an engineering problem, that they couldn't support the weight, so they changed the... Uh, declination, and set it up from there. Well, you can say that. I don't think so. Uh, To me, it looks like a pyramidion on top, which is what you see at the top of obelisks. You've got these long rectangular obelisks that stand high up in the sky, and then this little pyramid on top of it. Yeah. That's exactly what the Matem Pyramid looks like, only it's closer to the ground and more squat. But it's just this freaky thing in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's just desert. Why the hell would you build this thing in the middle of the desert. <laughs> How did you get it there in the first place, and why? <laughs> and right across from it, here's this other pyramid, which is a, a, a true pyramid until it's smaller than the ones at Giza. It's still impressive. Uh, and you say, why did you build this thing here? Why did you build the other one there? This, this is what? There's no road here. There's no water. <laughs> you just found the the weirdest out-of-the-way place that you possibly could and said, I'm going to build two huge pyramids here for the hell of it. I just didn't have anything better to do that day, and I happened to know how to lift incredibly huge weights. I thought I would take my giant's erector set and build me a couple of toys here in the middle of the desert that would puzzle everybody for the rest of time. (laughs) Well, that stands to reason, then, do you think that it wasn't really as desert
2: back then? Maybe it was a little more lush or something, or do you think it's always been sort of the way the climate is now?
0: Well, there we are getting into the theories that largely prove the idea of the 10,500 B.C. date. And that has to do with the dating of the Sphinx and the Sphinx-Temple complex. This is where Robert Schott comes into the picture and Thomas Debecki and a few other people who uh, are geologists. They've done a lot of research on this particular topic and determined that the erosion damage to the Sphinx, this is endorsed by 300 different geologists internationally, by the way. Yes, this is with the rain and everything, right? That's right. Uh, the damage to the body of the Sphinx is not wind erosion. It is water erosion. And for it is water erosion specifically from precipitation, a great deal of rainfall. Well, we're now getting back into the question of the flood, aren't we? Or where there could be this much rainfall. The only time there could have been that much rainfall where the Sphinx is, and the Sphinx had to have been where it is located always, because it is carved out of the solid bedrock. It is not moved there from different granite blocks. It's all of a piece. Mm-hmm. It was carved out of the bedrock itself. And, and ask yourself how you'd do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So here's this gigantic thing carved out of the bedrock itself, the only time we could have had that kind of precipitation, that kind of rainfall that could cause this kind of water damage would have been in the Pluvial Period, which is back, oh, I don't know, 11,000 B.C., that neck of the woods. Now, what do you yeah. think about the Sphinx, then? Well, definitely, it's extremely ancient. It had to have been built, you know, a good 12,000 years ago. Um uh, and presumably with all the other 10,500 B.C. indicators, probably that was about when it was made. There is a possibility that the complex was started at one point and completed at another. Uh, you'd have to get into Baval's theories a little bit more for that to get details. I'm, I'm not sure I follow that one myself. He might be right. I tend to think that it was all built in great antiquity, but it is possible it was built in stages. It's amazing. I still am stunned by
2: the whole idea that Mankind could go through such a period of prosperity. Well, I guess, the the, you know, we're talking about the the gods, I guess, building these things. Mankind really probably played a very minimal role in in all that. But it's just amazing to think that, you know, at some point the planet was this weird sort of thriving place where these amazing things were being built and everything. And then we went through this whole, like, dark age until, like, now when we have the technology to even possibly try to do something like that.
0: Until we hit the modern age. Literally. Until we hit the satellite age, I would say. Uh, Like post-World War II, we'd hit the nuclear age. And then we got satellites. Once we had satellites, we could see all kinds of things that we simply had never seen before. We were able to see chambers beneath the Earth uh, with ground-penetrating radar technology. We were able to see such things as where the pyramid is situated and how, and how astounding that is, which could only have been done by someone who understood that the Earth is round and knew its exact dimensions. There is no other way that that could have happened. It, that That is absolutely not by accident. <laughs> Just <laughs> period. That was designed. It was deliberate. There it is. It's laughing at us, or it's inviting us to join the game. It's like someone leaving a message saying, okay, look, you know what this is, don't you? Then, obviously, we knew what this was, too, when we built it. And that that's a form of communication right there.
2: Interesting. Yeah,
0: I like the way you put that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Sort of like a calling card from whoever was here before. Like, right. You know. Hey, remember us? Like, we're still hanging around here. We still have this, you
0: know, our pyramids are still... <laughs> we're coming back for our pyramids. Right. So We left our erector set, you know, in the middle of the desert. We, we thought we might come back for it someday.
2: Unbelievable. It's just amazing. You wonder if we'll ever get to the point where all this is like the way the mainstream thinks or if we're always going to be in the dark about
0: this stuff. Very interesting. Since you bring that up, you know what's funny Boval used to be, Boval and John Anthony West and Schock, Schock doesn't even enter the Egyptology question. He doesn't care. He could give dick about Egyptology. He just cares about geology. Uh, So when it comes to the Sphinx, he he doesn't give a damn how to explain it. He's just telling you this is how old it is. But a lot of us, and I am one of this group, who are the alternate Egyptologists, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, are almost becoming the new orthodoxy. Uh, to a particular set. And it's not even the New Age set, it's like there's a, this whole separate group. And this whole separate group has nothing to do with Egyptology per se. And they just ignore traditional Egyptology altogether, except to go back and refer to mistakes or errors along the way and to just study how they came about. But the New Egyptology is just taking all of the scientific precepts of study and applying them to Egypt as though no one has ever done so before, because quite frankly, they haven't. So we're starting to apply all of that stuff. Uh, it had begun a little bit before us with such things, like I say, as satellites and, and the United States Air Force Equal Surface Projection Map, things like that. Yes, there are some studies that, that were scientific studies starting to show this stuff. Well, we're referring to those studies and trying to figure out what it means. Uh, I mean, you can come up with all sorts of diagrams of wheels and pulleys and try and explain to me how granites taken from hundreds of miles south down the Nile were brought up to the Giza complex and somehow erected into positions that we cannot accomplish ourselves today. Now, you can you can talk about the wheels and pulleys and all you want or pushing up ramps by a bunch of slaves, but it doesn't add up. It simply does not add up. None of the traditional answers add up. So the rest of us, the alternatives, if you will, are trying to come up with the rational answers, the scientific answers, as best we possibly can, even when that simply means we don't know. Then we define what it is that we mean by we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I can't tell you how this happened, but I can tell you the logistics behind it to give you the complexity of the problem so that you can share in the frustration and the joy. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's better than just saying, just making shit up. Exactly. So again, I don't want to make crap up. I just want to tell you this is the problem. It's more fun to study the problem as a problem and acknowledge it as such than to come up with a phony answer. Exactly. Do I believe that anti-gravity was involved in, in, in building this? Yeah, absolutely. Can I explain it? No. <laughs> Not a clue. I don't know. It's exactly like Jean-Paul says. He says, well, it was easy for them. They knew some secret that we don't. And whatever it was, it made this easy. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. Not on this scale.
2: So now you went to Egypt, and and originally, what was? Let's talk a little bit about that original trip, because uh, you say you went with Zechariah Sitchin. You know, he recently yes. passed away about a year ago or so.
0: Yeah, it was last uh, year ago October. Yeah, year ago last month.
2: Yeah, and I, I've always kind of found that guy interesting, and 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 wished that I'd had him on the show. But the interviews I'd heard with him in the later years sounded like he wasn't
0: particularly keen on being interviewed anyway. But you said he, he was, was never keen on being interviewed. Yeah, uh, Sitchin was a very strange guy. I I, I knew him only from. Uh, a few letters and from the one trip that we had, which back then I think was uh, was about 12 days. It was about 10 or 12 days, anyway. It was a pretty lengthy trip. We, we hit both ends of Egypt. We did upper and lower. And we went into the Sinai Peninsula and Mount Sinai. Uh, Sitchin was a Russian Jew, so he basically wanted to go to the Holy Land, if you will. And he did, and he ended up going to Israel after that. Um which I was invited to go on that trip, but somehow the idea of going to Lebanon, Israel, and Turkey all at once, like, oh yeah, okay. (laughs) Uh, No, I don't think so. Uh, But yeah, he did. Uh, He was a translator of ancient languages. I saw him translate hieroglyphics in the Cairo Museum. That was kind of fun. The traditionalists have criticized Sitchin for his his, uh, translations. Uh, I definitely do not share that criticism. In fact, I'm quite awed by his ability to translate. When we were in the Cairo Museum, uh, he got a curator, and he asked him if he could see a particular tablet in that weird kind of halting monotone of his. May we see uh, the uh, UEP681 tablet? And and the guy would say, yeah, sure, and he'd take us right to it. (laughs) And then Sitchin would... Uh, look at the tablet, and he would point to the lines he was translating, and he would translate it right in front of us. And he would stop at one point, and he'd look at the curator and say, Is this a reasonable interpretation of this particular writing? And the guy would say, Yeah, yeah. as a matter of fact, thats uh, I might do it a little bit differently. But, yeah, it, it's perfectly acceptable. It's an allowable interpretation. And, you know, I, I watched him do that. Uh, he could read the hieroglyphs on the spot and translate them for you. And he could do the same with cuneiform, which is frankly even more impressive, you know, the ancient Sumerian writing. Uh, Mm This is very difficult stuff to master. Yeah. And he was a master of the ancient languages. Uh, He did his own translations from the original sources in many cases. Uh, And like I said, I got to watch him do it in the Cairo Museum. That was kind of impressive. Uh, He was very, very secretive and difficult to get to know. He didn't talk much. How was he secretive? Well, it's like if you wanted to find out about his history, he wasn't going to tell you. (laughs) It's always real dodgy and real sketchy. Uh, He was a Russian Jew. He was an immigrant. uh, And if you look just at the surface of his biography, this is a guy who uh, somehow came from Russia in the the Soviet military, no less. Okay, (laughs) This is where I'm sure he met Alexander Kazantsev, because Alexander Kazantsev was a Soviet colonel. So he goes from there to being educated at the London School of Economics, to being a correspondent in Israel for 10 or 12 years, and then uh, living in New York and writing these books. Now, this is an interesting resume. Yeah. How you want to piece all this together, I don't know, but it's certainly an interesting resume, and, and he definitely did not want to be filling in blanks concerning any of that resume.
1: Hmm.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Almost make you think he was some kind of spy or something. Uh, I, yeah, frankly, I definitely think he was. Um, I'm sure he was connected with somebody's agency somewhere. Yeah. If I were going to take a wild stab, I would say it was probably the CIA, but I am i can't be certain of that.
2: Yeah. Interesting. Strange. But was he a nice dude? Because he seemed
0: prickly every time I heard him on. He was prickly. <laughs> he, was pr- he was prickly even back then. Yeah, he was unquestionably prickly. Uh, in fact, when I was on, uh, <laughs> I had a brief spot on a show on Giants on the Discovery Channel several years ago, and Sitchin was a guest on that too. And this was not long after I had, I think it was about four years after I'd been uh, to Egypt with him. And while I was waiting for my spot, uh, some of the TV guys were around, and they were getting set up, and they were talking about, uh, Sitchin, and kind of what a dick he'd been. They, they were just trying to get him, like, a cup of tea or something, and all I did was complain. <laughs> no matter what they did, you know, well, first it wasn't sweet enough, and then they got him too much sugar, and they, well, it didn't have this kind of flavoring in it. And, you know, and all he did was just complain, 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 Oh, God. And I've always described him as a Jewish grandmother, because that's exactly how he comes off. He's just, <laughs> stay complaining, Jewish grandmother. <laughs> and so after they'd complained about him long enough, I just said, oh, I see you've met Zechariah, and they laughed. Uh, then they told me all the rest of it and all the story. They just said he was horrible. I can always tell if someone's actually met Zechariah because he'll be horribly rude to them, even if he likes you. I never had a conversation with Zechariah where he could praise you in something that you were doing or something that you were working on, but he would always insult you before he was finished. <laughs> I can't remember a single time I ever spoke with him that he didn't didn't insult me before we were done. <laughs> You just had to kind of get used to that with him. Yeah, yeah. You just you wait and you know it's coming before you're You you know going to get it anyway, so, right? <laughs> yeah. like, well, you know, I, I know you're throwing kind of, you know, faint praise at me now, but I know you're going to damn me later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yep. That's, what, that that that's what I was thinking of.
2: Interesting. All right. So, well, we should touch a little bit, I guess, on, on you know, obviously the Rux trilogy and the whole theory that, You know, the government knows about the aliens and they're seeding essentially what you've been telling us here for the whole uh, conversation so far. This whole, like, thesis, I guess you could say, that it's all been intentionally seeded in in pop culture to acclimate people to the idea. So, you know, how about a little update on that? Have you seen that sort of come further now in the last uh, couple years since we talked?
0: Well, it would help if I had some specific titles thrown at me, because I see so many of them.
2: <laughs> well, what
0: jumped out at you that you were like, wow,
2: that really nailed it? Anything you can think of in particular?
0: Well, I get struck by different things than other people might. Uh, for instance, I see The Green Lantern or Thor, and I'm looking at an entirely different movie than everyone else is looking at. Uh, the Green Lantern, especially, I'm kind of fond of. I've always liked DC anyway, the DC comics and superheroes. They kind of own the Cape and cowl business, or used to. Uh, Green Lantern is just an interesting character because he's pretty much a UFO abductee who gets turned into a superhero in the galactic community. Uh, I I just kind of like the way that they handle him. I think they do a pretty good job with it. Uh, They make it seem matter of fact, which I kind of like. And I do see a lot of that. Uh, I've been seeing a a tremendous trend in that over the last 25, 30 years, Uh, making the, the idea of extraterrestrial contact seem almost mundane or commonplace, or just a little bit beyond that. Uh, For instance, when Hal Jordan, the ship crashes, and Hal Jordan finds it, and there's an alien dying on board. He's kind of humanoid, and he finds him and just, uh, he he doesn't exactly know how to communicate with him because the guy's an alien. But this guy somehow is able to communicate to him that this ring belongs to him and that he needs to accept it, and he does, and he buries the alien as a decency, especially when he sees helicopters coming into the area to find the body. So he, he literally buries this alien from some other planet as a decency, uh, since he had the misfortune to die here. And the next thing he knows, he's kind of been the, the ring kind of takes possession of him, and he finds himself abducted to a slab someplace and has procedures done on him, and suddenly he knows stuff that he never knew before, and he's able to do things he was never able to do before. And he's talking to various non-human parties who are very intelligently communicating with him and saying, well, yeah, we've been around for a long time, and uh, we've never actually had a human here before, but welcome aboard. And it's all kind of just matter of fact. And I sort of like that approach. I think they're doing a pretty good thing with that.
2: Hmm. Interesting. Okay. How about the movie Paul? Did you see that film? Because that's like really rich. I
0: love Paul. Lore. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes, Paul is. Uh, that's probably my favorite alien comedy ever.
2: Interesting. Was... Okay, so that beats out Mac and Me. Uh, which one is <laughs> Mac and Me? Keep me straight. <laughs> that's the one with the kid in the wheelchair, and he like goes over the cliff.
0: It oh, no, was a is, terrible E.T. rip-off. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is so much better, it isn't even funny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Seth Rogen finally was perfectly cast uh, as something, and, and playing Paul was it. He just had the right voice and the right attitude and made it all work. And again, it's that matter-of-fact thing. Uh, here's this alien who crashed, you know, back in Roswell, and he's been held prisoner ever since, giving Steven Spielberg his ideas, who is presented as, you know, just kind of a yutz. Like, oh, now, that's a good idea. I could do something with that. Yeah, 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 whatever. Dude. And um, he finally gets away. And what does he want to do? You know, he just wants to go home. And you know, He wants to do the E.T. thing, but he's, he's really kind of matter-of-fact about it late back. yeah And he's having to do it all clandestinely because he is being pursued. And the people pursuing him are mm, not very nice. You know, they're men in black type. Casting Sigourney Weaver as the head of that particular agency I thought was sheer genius. And they put so many different uh, nerd appealing phrases in there. They were doing all kinds of homages to different sci fi movies from the past. It was it was just a delight. The entire cast was wonderful. I thought it was an excellent script. Uh it had me laughing non stop. I just loved it. But it was the homey familiarity of it that made it work for me. Well
2: here's an interesting sort of take on things too, because in the in Hollywood versus the aliens you mentioned sort of like a change of perspective as presidential administrations change and Yes. You know, since the last time we talked, I think the Obama administration was just starting. Yeah. Um, so have you seen that sort of, have you seen any sort of uh, thematic change in the portrayal of the of the E.T. story?
0: Well, in general, it would be exactly what we were just talking about, which is what I usually come to expect from a Democratic administration. Uh, they, the Democrats in general, this is a generalization, but it it does hold to be true, Uh, they tend to do the more interesting examinations of ET questions and uh, the more down-to-earth, if you will. Uh, Asking the practical questions and making it interesting, where in Republican administrations it's usually a scarier thing and we're being invaded and we need to hold up guns against them and all of that. Uh, I don't want to go too general with that, but yes, it does kind of apply. And uh, under the Obama administration, what I'm noticing more of are things like Green Lantern or Paul or the more interesting sort of examinations of extraterrestrial contact uh, there are exceptions of course and, and there have even been well there's one coming out now I can't think of the name of it it's set in Russia I've seen uh, some previews for it but I can't recall its name we have invisible aliens coming down and stealing no. our electricity <laughs> it, it's, it's, a re, it's kind of a redoing of Kronos if you remember that particular movie back from the 1950's now, where a giant robot comes from space and sucks up all our energy so they're kind of replaying that thing with a bunch of invisible aliens, and it's just another War of the Worlds. They, they recently had something a year or two ago with uh, things coming down out of the sky and giant robots destroying everybody, and I can't remember the name of that one either. And It's a standard War of the Worlds, yes, which can be kind of fun if you do it right. <laughs> but, and, uh, oh God, what was that other one? Aaron Eckhart was in it. Is this The
2: Cowboys uh, and the Aliens?
0: <laughs> no, no, no. Cowboys, that was weird. That was just bizarre. You know, there was a better thing of Cowboys and Aliens that wasn't called Cowboys and Aliens. It was Invasion Arizona, I think was the name of it. Interesting, okay. James Marsters was in it. I think it was on Sci-Fi Channel. I ended up renting it. I'd never heard of the damn thing. It was just kind of recommended to me on Netflix. So I rented it. I saw it months before Cowboys and Aliens was coming out. And I just loved it. I watched it and so said, this is a really good film. It was set you know, in the Old West. Uh, I don't know, 1860s, 1870s, somewhere in there. And sure enough, you got alien machines running around and basic flying saucers and a bunch of cowboys who don't know how to interpret it, but who gradually figure out that, well, these guys are from some other planet. And they did a pretty good job with it. <laughs> then I saw Cowboys and Aliens, and I said, wow, much bigger budget and not as good. <laughs> it wasn't a bad movie. It was okay. It just I mean, There, cheesy, there were, know. in fact, cowboys and aliens in that movie. Uh, I saw it. and There they were, so the title did not lie. Yeah, yeah,
2: the whole idea just struck me as so cheesy. But it came from a comic book, right? So, I mean, you you can't really blame Hollywood being ridiculous this time around.
0: No, and the irony is that The Invasion of Arizona, I'm not even sure I have that title right, Um, the irony is that that probably uh, came from the same Cowboys and Aliens thing in anticipation of a movie being made off of that same graphic novel. In other words, it beat it to the punch, and uh, I think it did a better job. Interesting, yeah. Well, that happens with Hollywood, though. They, You know, you get too many people in the room, and they all,
2: you know, need to change things, focus groups, and all this other fucking shit that ruins the movies. Too many the movie, so. to spoil the broth, yes. Exactly. Look Very at the, quickly, too. Yeah, you know, it's ridiculous.
0: My cousin Morty has someone that could do this. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you enjoy Planet of the Apes? The Rise of the Planet of the Apes? I, I loved love that movie. The rise of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, I think that's uh, my favorite will always be the original with Charlton Heston and Roddy McDowell and and the original Dr. Zeus. Dr. Zeus. you know, Maurice Evans and all that. I always think it was Ali Hawass when I see that. Uh, but I, I think Rise of the Planet of the Apes is probably the best one since the original. They did a fantastic job of that. When you want to get the idea of the gods and uh, bringing human beings up from nothing, you can't do better than looking at Planet of the Apes because it's taking it and putting the shoe on the other foot and making it, it's just putting it to the modern age and reversing everything. It's reversing it, right, so yeah. we can get a better idea of the perspective. But again, that's the kind of intelligent examination that I usually expect from Democratic administrations. Right, and that goes kind of to District
2: 9, too. That was sort of came around, uh, I think, after our interview originally, so that, that was a really good
0: sort of uh, alien movie, I thought. We got to talk about that briefly last time around. I think it had just come out. Uh, Yes, I thought District 9 was extremely intelligent. In fact, I've been waiting for District 10.
2: I know. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to see what they do with the story next.
0: Yeah. Uh, That was just an an extremely interesting take on the whole UFO business. Uh, For those that haven't seen it yet, first I would suggest you rent it, but... Basically, it shows the aliens as having moved here out of desperation and being stuck in South Africa in uh, a low-rent district. Uh, which where they aren't welcome. <laughs> People don't like them. You know, they're ugly, they smell bad, and they have weird habits, and no one really wants them there, and they kind of live in a ghetto.
2: Right. I thought that was an interesting twist on the whole idea, because, like, you always think of the aliens are going to be welcomed as gods and shit, but then you, it was cool to see a movie where the aliens are actually, like, a hindrance, big pain in the ass, sort of like, no one... They're is, desperate
0: refugees. Right. And they you know, like, don't uh, have room for them. Yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting take. Uh, just kind of standing everything on its ear. Yeah. What I like about this this kind of presentation of UFO stuff is it forces people to think. And it forces them to think in practical terms. It's like, look, you have a preconception in your head, but what if we're looking at something more like this? Right. You wonder what the whole agenda
2: is though, if uh, I, I guess they want people thinking about about the big questions, even if they already even if the you know the, the power brokers know the answer already in a
1: sense.
0: That's my take, yeah. I think they already know. Uh, they like to spin it however they want to spin it in whatever administration or according to whoever's vision. And it's never just one man who's in charge of this. There's obviously a committee, but mm-hmm. whoever the president is is going to pick people who are largely on his same page, would be my guess. So you're generally going to get that shaped from the top. Not dictated per se, but shaped. And uh, right now, I think they're doing a pretty good job. Uh, I, I like where the, the direction they're headed with it and uh, how they're handling it. And I hope to see more of that.
2: Now, you you say when you originally went to Egypt, that's when you kind of decided to write the two books. Has the second trip inspired any, uh, you know, percolating work?
0: Well, I'm not sure. I have discovered a few new things, if you will, or gotten some new insights, uh, one of which in particular... And I got this when I was rereading some of Baval's stuff and uh, Jane B. Sellers and a few of the other people that talk about archaeoastronomy and Egypt in particular. Archaeoastronomy, I have to understand, is a relatively new science. I think it only got to be formally recognized, and it's still kind of denigrated by a lot of people, around 1980 or that neck of the woods. So it's pretty new. Uh, the ancient Egyptians were archaeoastronomers par excellence, and by which I mean they are using their architecture to point to specific things in the sky, planets, stars, uh, they're very definite with it in their mythology and in their their archaeology, in their building. Uh, well, one thing that I'd noticed, and I had a little bit of trouble with this when I wrote my first book, in Architects, uh, I had noticed that the underworld was always to the west, but that the journey to the underworld, at least in the Egyptian mythology, was by way of the east to get to the west, and that always struck me as kind of odd. And I did mention that in my book. I I devoted a few pages to it just to be uh, honest and to be clear and thorough. But I think I figured that out. The underworld itself, when it is referred to as the underworld, is always to the west. The journey to the east generally refers to the stars. Uh, it's like there's the planet underworld and there's the journey through the stars. So there's a stellar orientation and there's a planetary orientation. When we're looking at the pyramid texts, which is where a lot of that comes from and all the references to the east, that's where we're looking at the stars and not at the planets. When we're talking about Osiris and the underworld and the specific afterlife journey, that's always located to the west. So at least I've, I've started to get that a little bit better delineated than I had it before.
2: Huh. Okay, but no, like, no massive Bruce Rucks tome in the works or anything like that?
0: No, not really. I think I've pretty well covered everything. Um, There are a few little tweaks I could give here and there and some updates. But um, I wouldn't know how to, unless I wanted to pull a Sitchin. And Sitchin needs to do this kind of thing all the time. In fact, a lot of authors do. I don't even fault them for it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's standard. Uh, You just take the stuff that you've written before and kind of reword it, rephrase it, and put it out again. Yeah. And you can pretty much do that endlessly. (laughs) And if I wanted to do that, I suppose I could do that. But for some reason, I I don't know. (laughs) I just feel kind of dishonest if I did. Well, that's one of the things I like about you, and
2: I think a lot of the a lot of the listeners do as well, and, and especially the folks like who have written in and stuff. It's like, it's like you came to ufology, you wrote these books, and then you left. Like we we talked a little bit about this uh, in in the Bruce Rocks trilogy, but I still find it like really fascinating and and refreshing and and cool that like you know you kind of came to your conclusions and then you're like I'm out. I don't need to get mixed up in all this anymore.
1: Well,
0: it was a lot like shock with the geology of the Sphinx. Uh, he's discovered what he discovered, and everyone else wants him to make some sort of pronouncements in Egyptology or wants to tell him he's wrong because of Egyptology. And his only answer to that is, look, I'm not an Egyptologist. I'm a geologist, and I'm telling you this is the geology. I don't care about the Egyptology. I'm just giving you what I know. Right. But
2: having left ufology, like what's your take on this Is sort of – I don't know if we explored a lot of this uh, in the original conversation, but what's your take, I guess you'd say, on the – on the field of ufology, on the pursuit of trying to unlock what you think you've already figured out?
0: I think that the field has always been incredibly weak, Um, and I say the same thing about Egyptology when it comes to studying Egypt or anything like that. The real problem is that you get priesthoods in any given field, and if we can call ufology a scientific discipline, which we can't, but if we were going to... (laughs) The real problem is that you get little schools that break off from each other, and they say, uh, for instance, the Zeta Reticuli thing is one of them, or the Gray Reptilians, and sometimes they'll overlap. They all have to be within their their little doctrines and their own little dogmas, or they just don't accept anything else. Jacques Vallée used to complain about that all the time. Uh, For instance, when uh, there was examination of the humanoids that were coming off of UFOs, Now, the greys were very frequently being talked about, and God knows they are seen quite a bit. But all the other shapes, as Valet liked to call them, were being censored from the database, literally. Like, if you wanted to talk about something that was overtly a robot, well, they'd just throw it out. They didn't want to hear it, because it wasn't a grey. And the greys, after all, are reptilians from Zeta Reticuli, therefore the robot claims must be false. Uh, they they just reject what they don't want to hear, or yeah. what doesn't fit into their narrow scenario, and that's typical of any priesthood, as I like to call them. Uh, Egyptology is a priesthood, and so is ufology. Actually, ufology is several priesthoods all at war with each other. Yeah, and there, you can't have any progress out of that. All you're going to get is endless argument. Right, right. Part
2: of it's too is, is that it's like an amateur science, or or, or even like an you know. I don't know. It's sort of like a weird – if it's a religion in a sense, it's a weird sort of religion where, like, anybody can rise can to priesthood. Play. Right.
1: <laughs>
0: well, and, and I'm no different from that. Uh, I came in from the outside. Uh, I wrote what I – I came up with all my observations, like you said, and I wrote them down. Uh, I crossed my T's, dotted my I's, showed all my research, and said, you know, I'm willing to discuss this. That's fine. But uh, I am pretty unshakable unless someone can come up with – I'm arguing from my conclusions, not from anything else. Uh, if you want to attack my conclusions, fine. If you want to go after the arguments, fine. But uh, I'm not a ufologist per se. I'm not someone who's going about studying all these various different theories. I've already come to the conclusion on what those theories mean and what they represent, what they, what the answers are.
2: Yeah. That's why people like you. That's why people like hearing from you on the show because you're, you know, you're not pitching a new book or you're sort of like not. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but but you have your. You have your perspective on this, and, and you admit when you don't know something, but at the same time, it's like you seem pretty adamant that, that what you've the conclusions you've come to are are the actual conclusions, which I find interesting.
0: I'm pretty well certain of that. When it comes to particulars, there are all kinds of things I don't know, but I am comfortable not knowing those things. Uh, like I said earlier, it's better to, to admit that you don't know and just be able to discuss it honestly uh, than it is to toss out some theory and, and stick to it, and say, "Well, this is the way it is." Well, that's the difficult part when you do that, because I'm
2: I'm of a, I'm sort of like the opposite of you in a way. This is the weird part too, because uh, it's weird that I enjoy our conversations so much. Because, like, I'm of the I'm just sort of like let, leave everything as a potential, and and you, and you you sort of lock down on on what you think it is. But either either side is, I think, in a sense, almost healthier than than sort of constantly having to, like, fit the latest news into your vision almost.
0: Yeah, and and I see an awful lot of that taking place. That used to be the problem with Art Bell. Obviously, if you're running this kind of show, and you're sort of stuck in the same position to a certain extent, you really can't commit to any particular theory, because you have to be open to everyone else's theory in order to have your show. Uh, That's how you're able to present everybody else's theory, because that's what your show does. Uh, So there's a certain amount of that that's understandable. In Bell's case, he just kind of went crazy with it. He was three-ring circus. That's where, and this week, a man who believes in Martians. Next week, from alternate dimensions, aliens from Zeta Reticuli. In this ring, you know, he's just pointing from one to another, and it's just another dog and pony show every week. But there is a a built-in problem with this particular kind of format in that if you commit to a particular kind of theory, then you're no longer a format that is presenting different theories. Right, exactly. Exactly. You're not really trying to get to the bottom of all this. You're just
2: trying to reinforce whatever you believe in.
0: Right. And I see no problem with that. In fact, I think it's fair, good, and just that everyone gets their chance at the pulpit to say whatever it is they have to say. Now, ideally, I would hope they do the same thing that I do, which is, if you think you've got something... Nail it down. Present your court case. Cross your T's, dodge your I's, put it all together and present a case. Make a book out of it. Because then we have something that we can go over and discuss. Then you have what is called falsifiable information. If I find something wrong with your presentation or with your facts, I can falsify them. In other words, I can say you're wrong as far as this goes. Uh, or well, I see your point on this, but I may disagree with the interpretation. The Point is, you have you have a bedrock from which to operate.
2: Right, right, right. You have a foundation from then you begin your discussion. Right. We we kind of talked about how how steadfast you are in, in your theories. Is there anything that would come along that would like change fundamentally change your thought, unless like the aliens landed and they were like, no, actually, Bruce, you're you're wrong about that. We come from uh, France or something, you know, like. Well, that would definitely do it. <laughs>
0: Yes, that would definitely change my mind. Again, that's falsifiable evidence. If they actually showed up and uh, shook hands with me and happened to pee out of their finger and all that other stuff, I'd say, well, okay, uh, I guess I was wrong. Uh, Or at least I'd say, okay, so that's you guys, but uh, are the other guys out there too? Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Uh, The only thing that could really change my mind on it would be a more solid argument. And I have not found that.
2: Well, exactly, yeah, because it's... it's you know, I find your theories to be particularly strong because a lot of the stuff that I've heard is like they don't take, you know, if it's a modern UFO thing, they don't take into account the ancient astronaut part, or, 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 like you said earlier, you know, the ancient astronaut thing really doesn't take into account the modern era, or it's like always seems like these things, little things, don't get all tied in together, and you seem to really have tied a lot of the little details in.
0: in the two prominent priesthoods, the modern ufologists and the ancient astronaut bunch are simply not paying attention to each other's arguments because they're frankly proving each other. They're not at odds. Right, exactly.
2: Right, right, right. Because they, you know, they don't... It's just strange that they don't even seem to want to...
0: They don't want to talk.
1: Right, right. I mean, some you know, people... I
0: can tell you why that is. I can tell you why that is. They're spooked. When you get into modern ufology, and you're getting into the question of abductions... And if you get into the question of abductions, you're opening an entire can of worms. Now, I've got those pretty well uh, figured out as far as I am concerned and can make sense of them, uh, equating it with the ancients. Because, like I said, it's in ancient, um, it is in ancient writings and mythologies. In fact, there are two uh, Egyptian papyri, the papyrus of Ra and the papyrus of Ani. They're, they're both the papyrus of Ani, basically, but they're telling the same story. And the story that they're telling is of what amounts to a UFO abduction. And the UFO abduction goes like this. The Ethiopian viceroy and the pharaoh are having some kind of a conflict. So the Ethiopian viceroy goes to his magician. And the magician uh, makes quote-unquote model men and animates them by his magic. They fly on the clouds at night, pick up the pharaoh, beat him with sticks 500 times, drop him back off where he came from a couple, hour la- a couple hours later. When the Pharaoh wakes up in the morning, he's got all these marks on his body, and he's sore. And he calls all the courtiers in and says, what the hell happened? Because he doesn't remember. But then he gradually recalls what happened to him, that he got picked up and that these model men did this to him. And everyone thinks he's crazy, except his court magician. His court magician says, look, I know exactly what happened to you. The court magician of the Ethiopian viceroy did this to you. I'm going to give you an amulet to prevent that happening again, and I'm going to do the same thing to him. And he does. But what I've got here, I have a story of a UFO abduction, a modern UFO abduction. I've got something that flies on the clouds at night, picks up a given target by model men or robots, performs procedures on him that leave marks. They are recognized the next day, but the person doesn't remember how they got there. The memory gradually comes back to him. That is a modern UFO abduction, right there. And everybody involved in the Roswell crash that saw the wreckage remains all said the same thing. They all said that they saw hieroglyphs, or what looked to them like hieroglyphs. Something hieroglyphic. I saw hieroglyphic writing. I saw something like Egyptian writing. Every single one of them said that. Well, there I've got a connection all the way back to the ancient world, back to ancient Egypt.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. It all comes together like your theories here, so it's very interesting. So, what do you think then is going on with abductions in light of the entire thesis you've laid out here in this conversation? What, what, why, why would these gods be sending robots to pick up people and look at them and maybe, maybe create hybrids? If that's even, you know, we don't know if that's on the table
0: anymore or not. Well, hybrids, I think, is uh, not necessarily an accurate word. It's not necessarily inaccurate either. We don't know the nature of the offspring. But the nature of the offspring at least has to be admitted as more human than anything else. All the descriptions of them appear to be human. Uh, So whether they are actually alien human or human-human, and I say they're human-human, but uh, partly with humans from someplace else. In other words, they're they're no more hybrid than uh, a mulatto. You know? If a black person and a white person get together, they... Have a baby. It's human. It's completely human. You want to call it a hybrid? Okay, you can call it a hybrid, but it's human. I don't know what else to call it. So, yeah, in that sense, maybe. Uh, But as far as picking people up or why they would be doing so and why they would be doing cattle mutilations, for that matter, because they are testing the contaminants that have been picked up by people in given regions. As far as the hybrids go, or just the offspring, let's just call them the offspring, uh, the creation myths around the world are all pretty explicit that humankind was started here, having been brought from someplace else. In other words, a race was created someplace else and brought here. But that's part of it. Uh, there was a race that was created here to be slaves. There were people that were created elsewhere and brought here to start up life and brought to other planets to start life. And I think that something like that may still be going on. Uh, in any event, I'm not seeing anything different now than has ever been talked about in the ancient mythologies. Uh, I do think there are medical tests being that are taking place primarily to determine how much radiation or how many uh, chemical contaminants, for instance, are being picked up in given regions because we poison our atmosphere and our environment beyond belief. Right, right, right. And they would need to have certain test control subjects to check that out.
2: Interesting. Yeah, that would
0: make sense, because, you know, the the world is horribly
2: polluted as it is, so it's like, right. theoretically, they would be interested in what the hell, (laughs) how we stand on that, because they wouldn't have access to our data, theoretically.
0: Well, and we're one of their resources. Uh, That's another way to look at it, too, and not to be cold-blooded about it, but uh, we are their cousins, so in that sense, they and their offspring, so they have a certain sense of, of obligation or responsibility to us, but we are also one of their resources. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they're taking a lot of things from this planet, and, and again, like in the mythologies, they pretty much stay out of our way and leave us alone, but they expect us to stay out of their way and leave them alone. Right. But they're going to take whatever they need. They're going to take whatever resources they need from here.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that it, it, it goes to the whole idea that like we're an owned race, in a sense, that we don't yes. even know it, but we're actually like the property of some of some other race somewhere.
0: That's, that was Charles Ford's conclusion, and a lot of people have followed him and said the same thing. I don't disagree with him except in one regard, and that is that I don't think that we are owned like slaves. Uh, that we are someone else's property in a loose sense, yes, I would say that's true. But uh, I don't take that in a negative sense so much. We're not slaves. We're almost uh, like a ward? Yeah, we're more like wards, I think it's a better way to put it.
2: Yeah. Interesting, and they're hoping that we'll grow up and become <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, well-rationed, you know, reasonable, uh, mature adult race. And Do you remember
0: my stepmother is an alien? Speaking of old uh, Flying Saucer movies, 1989, I think. Vaguely, it was. vaguely. One of Kim Basinger's early movies. She plays an alien that comes down here, and she's basically supposed to destroy the human race for the aliens, uh, but she decides she likes us. She meets Dan Aykroyd and decides that she likes us and doesn't want to see us destroyed. Well, who who doesn't like Dan Aykroyd? Who doesn't like Dan Aykroyd? There you go. So uh, sure enough, they get guess, and you know, uh, likes his daughter uh, Allison Hannigan pre Buffy. Oh wow! Said, uh, they all get along very well. So she decides she doesn't want to destroy the Earth. But one of the early lines that she has when she's talking with Aykroyd, who I think is a, a space scientist in the movie, I don't remember now, but she has some offhanded comment where she says, "You guys haven't even figured out Stonehenge yet." I just thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> Like, you don't even know what this is. <laughs> what's the matter with you people? And we get back to my, my question about the doors and about going behind the doors in the pyramid. It's like, look, these guys set this up a long time ago, and it, it's almost like a joke. It's a shaggy dog joke. It's like, how much do we have to do to get you guys to recognize we're here? Exactly. It's, uh, you know, it's weird.
2: The whole thing is strange. I want to know what's behind that door.
0: No kidding. <laughs> you would be both. I can't believe and no one... All, and several other people. How long just ago just was like this, this whole door thing? Like,
2: how long ago did they send that little robot up to look at it originally?
0: I believe that they the Upa Wild robot is what that was called. I believe that was sent up in 98. Oh, wow. So, like, we're uh, talking, like, four, oh, 13, yeah, it's 14 years. Time. Yeah, It spent some time. Wow. It was right about the time of either my first or second book, as I recall, or very shortly after. So, yeah, we're talking um, a good 12 years anyway, 12, 13 years. Jesus. It's been quite a while. And, and like I said, Ganbrink just gave up on it. He said, you know what? Screw it. If you guys want to do something, fine, we'll do it, but screw it. Because, you know, he always had Zoi Hawass killing any interesting uh, investigation and stomping on it in the way they could. Now that Hawass is gone, uh, in theory, in this vacuum, and we do seem to have some uh, slightly more enlightened people involved right now, uh, we should be able to get something more going. And hopefully, Bavol will be able to do something about that. If anyone is going to, Robert Bavol will do that. Interesting. We're going to have have Robert on the show at some point soon to talk about a lot of this. Well, that would be fabulous. Yeah, you'd you'd find him a very excellent guest. He's an extremely interesting conversationalist. Yeah, I'll definitely. He's very animated. You won't have to worry about asking him questions. You probably won't get a word in edgewise. (laughs) Those are the best guests
2: sometimes. I get to just sit back and enjoy the show like the audience does. There you go. Well, speaking of uh, enjoying the show, I'm sure the folks at home have uh, really enjoyed this one, and I tried to get you to tell us what's up next, but it sounds like you're sort of happy in your, uh, you know, semi-retirement until BOA Audio drags you back to the phone again, which is fine with me
0: because (laughs) we love having you on the rotation. I'm always happy to be dragged back. Uh, It's not dragging so much. I'm kind of, you know, running my way in there. Uh, if I come up with anything new, I mean, if I have any other projects in the works, I'll certainly inform you. You'll be the first to know. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We'll do like a breaking rux audio and have you on
2: the show just to talk about it. But you know, we we I feel like it's a mixed bag because I'm happy for you. I you know I don't want you mixed up in the world of ufology. It's a you know it's a it's a crude little world. It's I try to stay out of it as much as possible. It's like the bad part of the paranormal town. So it's like uh, kudos to you for for not mixing it up in it. But then it's like I wish you would do more. But at the same time, you feel content in in, in what you've done. It's an interesting sort of place to be at. You don't see see a lot of ufologists who are sort of like still yearning and searching and 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 have this hunger or something. And it seems like you're satiated.
0: You've got a split pair in the ufologist, and the split pair are pretty much like this. You've got the ones that are genuinely searching and are still confused and can't find their answers because they haven't really latched on to anything yet that explains it for them. They're the sincere ones. And then you got the other ones that are just the sensation seekers. They just want attention. Uh, me, 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 pay attention to this. Oh, look, I found this, I found this, I found this. They just want a lot of attention. And between the two of them, you're not going to get too much genuine communication. It's not going to work out too well. So you're going to get the ballyhooers and you're going to get the sincere people who do, who haven't found anything yet or haven't been able to put it together. And between the two of them, you're not going to go too far forward. Until so you come up with some kind of solid theory and are able to run with it, you're not going to go anywhere. Every time I talk to you, it's always, it's always such a fun conversation. And, uh, you
2: know, I find your stuff fascinating. I'm going to be digging into Architects of the Underworld as soon as I can. It's such a detailed book that... I really feel like I need to, like, schedule the interview with you and then buckle down and sit down and really read it all in one shot over the course of, like, a week, and then, and then we'll have, a, you know, perhaps another Rux
0: trilogy on our hands. It is extremely involved. Uh, it's a much more academic and scholarly book than uh, Hollywood. Uh, I tried to make it as conversational as possible and definitely not to write over anybody's head. I made sure to include everything that I could but make it accessible, or at least as accessible as I knew how to. Well, I'm looking forward to digging into
2: it, and obviously we're going to have you back on the show in the future to do that. So I can't thank you enough for tonight's. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) It's going to be a blast. But I can't thank you enough for tonight's conversation. It's been great. And uh, as I said, uh, you know, the, the, the public demanded this. They enjoyed the original Rux trilogy so much that... You know, what was that? Didn't, like, Star Wars have, like, a primetime cartoon or something, like, after the original trilogy? You know, this is sort of like our little variety show episode before we we dig into the next big meal, which will be Architects of the Underworld. Well, uh, there you go. You know, I wanted to have Bruce on here to really sort of lay the groundwork for what we'll be talking about in the future and tell us about his trip to Egypt. So it's been, it's been a blast, Bruce. So, you know, I could talk all night, but I know we both have stuff to do. So, <laughs> you know, we'll both we'll, we'll look at the clock, and it'll be like 10 in the evening. And we'll be like, holy shit, we just taped like seven hours of, uh, of conversation. We'll leave the audience wanting more, more Bruce Rucks in the
0: future. So thank now, you. Tim, it's always too long g- between talks, and you're always welcome, and uh, you know how to reach me. Absolutely, absolutely.
2: That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to Bruce Rux for coming on the show. No website to plug, so be sure to check out his books, Architects of the Underworld and Hollywood vs. the Aliens, both available on Amazon.com. And if you want to get in touch with Bruce, shoot me a line via BOA, and I'll pass your correspondence on to him. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback, and I was going to skip it so we could get the show out to folks as soon as possible here before the big holiday, but I remembered that this is the third-to-last installment of the program for Season 6, and I wanted to make sure we get as many people featured on listener feedback as possible, so let's just dive on into the mailbag. First email comes from B.C., no hometown listed, and here's what he has to say. You mentioned the audio cutting out in the Kathleen Martin interview, but did you notice that at 100 minutes and 10 seconds into the interview, it clearly sounds like someone breaks into the line? She was talking about a plaque. If you know what I'm talking about, have you been able to make sense of it? Like, tell what the voice is saying. I listened to the streaming version on CyberEars. Perhaps it's not audible in the downloaded version. I heard you mention how the phone kept cutting out, but was surprised you did not mention this, which I find far more jarring than the cuts. I'm guessing other people have emailed you about it. Anyway, love the show. B.C. Well, I took a moment and went back and listened to the Kathleen Martin interview, that segment of the conversation, to hear what B.C. was talking about, and I'm happy to report that I can solve the mystery right now, B.C., In actuality, that was not someone breaking into the line. That was just me covering up the phone to yell at someone here in my house that I was doing an interview. You can kind of make out a muffled version of me shouting, I'm doing an interview. So there was no chicanery involved in that moment of the Kathleen Martin conversation. Just me trying to get someone to leave me alone while I was taping an episode of BOA Audio. So... Mystery solved, BC. Hopefully you have not spent too much time trying to figure out what was behind that moment in the interview. Just a uh, little behind-the-scenes tomfoolery here at BOAHQ. And as I said, nothing nefarious involved. Next email comes from Paulo. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I just wanted to let you know that your season six webpage looks broken in that it is missing lots of episodes. And then he points me to the URL which has been all of dot com slash BOA Classic slash audio six dot HTML and says Thanks Paulo. Well Paulo, uh, the reason for that is that you are going to the BOA classic page and uh, we have not updated that in quite some time when the big audio shift happened, just updating BOA proper took so much time that I never got around to fixing BOA Classic, and really, BOA Classic has kind of fallen way off the radar here for Benal of America tasks, if you will, and I highly recommend, obviously, that you go to com slash audio six. For all of your Season 6 needs. That will have all the updated links. And working URLs. I'm not sure what we're going to do right now. About BOA Classic. I'd kind of like to phase it out. Since it is uh, about a year and a half old. At this point, And something that I really just don't have the time. To update constantly. As you can see if you go to BOA Classic. So I may just turn it into sort of a time capsule. Of the BOA layout before the big switch in the summer of 2010 but I am glad you mentioned that Paulo so I can uh, put some notice up there that will direct folks to the proper linkage for BOA audio thank you for writing in I appreciate your concern but uh, you've just been heading down the wrong path final email this week comes from Mike in Minneapolis here's what he has to say Like always, another great season of BOA. I wanted to tell you how much this show means to people. Your choice of guests may rile some, but it opens new ways of thinking for those who are willing to listen, such as the Meat-Eating Horses episode. Who the hell ever heard of meat-eating horses, unless you count Sarah Jessica Parker with a hamburger? Like you, I don't always buy everything that the guests are selling, but I'm willing to listen to them. It makes you think, and that is what I like. I take most things with a slightly skeptical eye, but I always leave the door open to possibility. Until I had a covered door fly open with a glass thrown at my face, I didn't really believe in ghosts. A high point in my week is when I see a new show come up in my iTunes, and I know that for that day at work, I'll have a couple of hours where the day doesn't suck ass so bad. I don't want to sound whiny, since I have it much better than most do, but you add a wonderful escape for us who need something else to think about for a few hours. By the way, the offer of beers is still open if you are ever in Minneapolis. Thanks again for the show, and already looking forward to the 2012 baseball episode. Go Twins! Mike in Minneapolis. Thank you for writing in, Mike. Much appreciated. Glad to see you enjoyed the Meat-Eating Horses edition of the program. And I was very thankful, really, that a lot of folks got on board with that show, since it was really, in my mind, a tremendous edition of the program. Really one of my favorite interviews in quite some time. I didn't hear too much negative feedback about it, although I did see sort of the weird snickering in certain corners of Esoterica with regards to us covering that topic. And when you really think about it, that's sad. In my mind, that's really sad because here we are, we're in the paranormal community. We should be open to all kinds of weird stuff, but you still get people who are in the paranormal community that are like, that's just too weird for me, or everybody knows that horses don't eat meat. As if, you know, they don't get riled up when you hear somebody say everybody knows that UFOs aren't real. I mean, come on, folks, we're in the paranormal. We should be willing to look at all the different stuff That's out there, no matter how strange and unusual. Listen to the information, digest the facts for yourself, and then make a decision. Don't just judge a book by its cover. And I think a lot of folks who passed on the Meat Eating Horses edition of the program did just that, and really, at the end of the day, cheated themselves out of what was one of the best BOA audio episodes of the season. So I'm glad that Mike got on board with the Cacullin O'Reilly conversation. And as always, you know, when I hear from folks who appreciate the program and say that we helped them get through the day, it's just tremendously humbling for me. I just can't get over how remarkable it is that Mike in Minneapolis and the emailer a few weeks ago from South Korea and, you know, the guy who was stationed in Afghanistan a couple seasons ago They're all BOA Audio listeners. They're listening throughout the world. Some folks, you know, they're far away from home right now, and they're missing their family, and it's Thanksgiving, and they're listening to BOA Audio too. So, uh, you know, I'm just so thrilled to have created this whole enterprise and to have brought all of us together. And beyond thrilled, I'm just humbled, folks. I'm truly humbled at what this program has become, And, and Mike really sums it up in a big way. So thank you for writing in, Mike. Much appreciated. Glad you enjoyed the Cacullin O'Reilly edition of the program. That'll close the book on BOA Audio Listener Feedback this week. Thanks to Mike in Minneapolis for writing in. Thanks to Paulo. Hope you find the new editions of the program at the proper URL. And thanks again to BC for writing in. Glad I could clear up the confusion regarding the Kathleen Martin interview. We mentioned it last week, but let's mention it once again here. We are coming to the close of Season 6, so now is the time to send in your guest suggestions and guest requests for BOA Audio Season 7. As if there was ever any doubt, folks, there will be a Season 7. That is a definite. And so we want to hear from you with regards to who should be on Season 7. So send those correspondences in, and obviously, sending your feedback for the penultimate edition of listener feedback on the next installment of the program. Here are the ways to get in touch with me. You can write to BOA at hotmail.com or go to Binallofamerica.com, B I N N A L L OF America.com, and click the contact button or join up at the official BOA forum. The U.S. of E.com, dot ecom If you don't want to write all those letters down, head on over to all of America and click the forum button. It is BOA's paranormal playground. Lots of discussion on the world of esoterica, BOA audio, and pop culture as well. Lots of fun going on at The U.S. of E. And, of course, I want to mention that we are on Facebook and Twitter so just punch in binall B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and I will pop up on their search engine. Feel free then to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. Now let's give thanks to the amazing and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Sena, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. New stuff at the website from Leslie and Regan Lee. New stuff coming up from Richard Thomas and Tony Morrill. So stay tuned to All of America for lots of columns from the amazing BOA staff. We say it week in and week out, my friends, but it is the truth. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at All of America then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA Audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the program and the website to help keep the whole operation up and running. I'm going to be hitting you hard here over the next few episodes as we close out Season 6, asking you if you've enjoyed The last 28 episodes, if you're going to enjoy the next two that we close out the season with, if you've enjoyed the ride, then please, please, please make a donation to help get us into the black as we close the book on Season 6. There are two ways to donate to the franchise. You can head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to paypal.com. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the internet and you want to make a donation via snail mail, we can take care of you that way as well. Just send your donation to Tim Benall, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass 01866. And you spell Pinehurst, P I N E. H-U-R-S-T. So all together, it's Tim Banal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866. And if you send us a donation to the P.O. Box, please include your email address or some other form of contact so I can reach out to you and thank you for helping us out. And please make your donation payable to Tim Banal, and not Banal of America since my bank is anal and they will not cash those donations. We say it at the end of every donation request, but it bears repeating once again, my friends. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next time on BOA Audio, we've got a very special edition of the program because our guest is going to be Mac Maloney, author of the book UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know. And the cool part about this interview is the book actually is not even out yet. It's not due to be released until December 6th, and I have been afforded an advanced copy via Mac. So I'm actually reading it right now. We're taping the interview in a few days. And uh, I can't really plug too much about it, obviously, since we haven't taped the show yet. But it will be clearly covering UFOs in wartime. And from what I've read so far, it is some fascinating stuff. And it really cuts across a whole series of conflicts where unidentified flying objects were reported. So, a very intriguing topic with a very accomplished author. Mac Maloney joins us to celebrate the release of and really launch the release of UFOs in wartime. That's next time on BOA Audio. And on that note, it's time for me to kick back and relax here and enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday. I hope all you folks out there are having a fantastic Thanksgiving and as such, let's give thanks once again to Bruce Rux. Love talking to him. Can't wait to sit down with him again in the future and really dig deeper into Architects of the Underworld. Also, big thanks to BC, Paulo and Mike in Minneapolis for contributing to this week's installment of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And, of course, and as always, big, big thanks to all you folks out there, the BOA Audio listeners, especially the hardcore folks who are listening right now, who stick around to the very end. I thank you all the time here at the end of the show. I don't know what else to say. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support of this program. We would be nothing without the BOA Audio listeners, and that is a fact that is never lost on me. Hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, and thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim and all signing off.